You're listening to the Jolly Swagman Podcast. Here's your host, Joe Walker. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, swagmen and swagettes, welcome back to the show. Before we start, a quick housekeeping item to say I love getting correspondence from you, so I want to take a moment to encourage it further. I'm continually shocked and humbled by how impressive this audience is. Some truly brilliant people listen to the show, and that makes engaging with you all particularly fruitful. So if you have suggestions, things you think I should read, ideas you want to share, please get in touch. You can reach me by email, joe at thejspod.com or on Twitter. My handle there is at Joseph N. Walker. Okay, to this episode, our guest is Ken Henry. Ken Henry is an Australian economist who has held roles in academia, the public service, as a political advisor and in the public sector as chairman of National Australia Bank, one of Australia's big four banks. But his most prominent role was as Secretary of Australia's Treasury Department from 2001 to 2011, which effectively made him the most powerful bureaucrat in the country for a decade. That decade included, of course, what we Australians call the GFC, or Global Financial Crisis of 2008. Australians don't speak of the Great Recession, since Australia was the world's only major advanced economy to avoid recession during that period. That success was in no small part thanks to Ken and his Treasury team, who engineered Australia's fiscal response to the crisis. Ken's immortal advice to then Prime Minister Kevin Rudd was, go early, go hard, and go households. So it was a real honour to chat with Ken about his career, about economic policymaking, and economic theory. Now, for non-Australian listeners, such as my British and American swagmen and swagettes, this episode partly focuses on topics within an Australian context, which might seem parochial. However, if you enjoy learning about other cultures and about economic policymaking in specific contexts, you will find this episode extremely enriching. At four and a half hours, this is my longest podcast ever, and it remains fascinating right up to the very end. So a word of advice, if you come across a topic during the conversation that doesn't interest you personally, Keep listening because many other subjects are covered throughout the discussion that you will probably find interesting. Like all my episodes, this episode comes with an amazing resource that is a transcript complete with helpful hyperlinks to things mentioned during the conversation. Except this episode's transcript is the length of a small novel and you can find it on my website, thejspod.com. That is thejspod.com. Finally, please excuse any dogs barking or other background noises you might hear during the conversation as we recorded this at Ken's farm. The recording took place on Thursday, the 4th of May, 2023. Enjoy. Ken Henry, welcome to the podcast. Good to be with you. So Ken... I have questions about Treasury as an institution and, and the process of making policy. 
got philosophical yeah. questions yeah. Uh, and I have questions about specific policies. But first, I want to start with some history. Okay. You joined Treasury's tax policy division in 1984 and then you moved across to Paul Keating's office yeah. in 1986 while he was treasurer to be one of his senior economic advisors. And you were there until 1991. Mm-hmm. What was it like to be in the engine room of Australia's golden era of economic reform? Well, it was an absolute blast. You know, I, I um, for some years before that, I had been a junior academic having just completed a PhD. And um, I went into the Treasury in, I think it was August of 1984. And I was naive but curious. Um, I went in because of uh, what I could see happening within government, that there was a hell of a lot going on. The Hawke-Keating reform era that had commenced, I guess really, well, pretty much after they were elected in March 1983. I mean, they got straight into it, but by by um, early 1984, it was clear that this was going to be a reformist government. I thought, well, I, want to, I wouldn't mind finding out what this is like. Um, stepping out of academia. But I thought, I can't step out of academia for very long. And all my colleagues said to me, you're nuts. <laughs> if you step out of academia, you'll never get back in. Or you get back in, but um, you take one year out, it's like going to sleep for five years as far as your academic career is concerned. And I thought, oh, well, okay, I'll I'll put a limit of two years on it. I reckon after six months of being in the Treasury um, in that reform period, I knew that I was never going back to academia and that policy was going to, and policy work was going to dominate my life. I knew that after six months. Um, and of course, I was working as part of the team in um, through the first half of 1985 that put together that draft white paper on tax reform that, that Keating without cabinet authority, by the way, um, that he took to the National Tax Summit in June of 1985 um, without any support from within, <laughs> from amongst his colleagues, um, on the basis of work that had been produced by a very small team of Treasury people. Um, maybe you'd need two hands to count the number, maybe. Um uh, who had produced a um, a reform package that had the support of nobody outside of the treasury, nobody, like not in academia, not not amongst other government departments, um, and certainly not in the media, um, and yet, um, Keating had the courage to take that all the way to the national tax summit, knowing beforehand that. It was almost certain that he was going to lose the argument. And I just thought, God, it can't get any better than this, right? Uh, and so when in the middle of 1986, uh, he asked me to join his office as a senior advisor and get even closer to the action, which actually I think from my perspective, it, it really meant get closer to him. Um, well, it was irresistible. It was an ir- irresistible invitation. And as you say, I stayed there for five years. But I would say that whole five years was just a blast, just one continuous, amazing, um, amazing experience. 
I don't think the adrenaline ever stopped flowing, not for a second. Do you have any kidding anecdotes that you can share? No. Uh, I've got kidding <laughs> anecdotes. I'm not sure that I've got ones that I, I, I would share. I think, um, I mean, maybe... Maybe one, which is uh, maybe give you a bit of a flavour for the sort of person he is. And I won't mention, um, no, I'll give you two. Um, I won't mention names, but um, I don't think these stories have ever been told uh, publicly and there's no reason why they should be. Um, And I was the only witness to these two. but on one occasion, it was shortly after I joined Keating's office, so we were still in the old Parliament House. One of his senior colleagues, very senior minister, um, came in to see Paul, and I happened to be sitting in Paul's office across the desk from him. I'd been briefing him on some policy issue. And the senior minister came in and I uh, said, look, I... Paul, I really need to talk to you before question time. And I got up to leave and the fellow said, no, 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 look, honestly, it's all right. You stay. doesn't matter. Um, and Paul said, what is it, mate? And he said, well, you know, I'm taking all these decisions um, and I find myself waking up at 2 o'clock or 3 o'clock in the morning just worrying about whether I was taking, whether I'd been taking the right decisions or not, and you know, questioning my own judgment on the decisions that I'd taken the previous day and days before. And he said, "I'm just in in to- turmoil over it." And I, th- I think these, I think these are the precise words Paul said. He said, "Well, mate, it's time to go." Wow. Yeah, like wow. And I thought. I thought, God, I don't know anybody else, and I'm sure I've never met anybody else in my life who would have responded in that way. And, I mean, it, was, it wasn't as if Paul was unfeeling at all. It was just, and in fact, probably quite the opposite because they then, went, they then went on to discuss why Paul had said what Paul had said. And shortly after the minister did, he, he stepped down. Huh. Um. And so there's a, I mean, it, it can come across as almost brutal, but it's, um, there's a method, sorry, not a, there, there is, there was more to it than that. I mean, Paul wasn't being unkind at all. He understood the situation absolutely perfectly, but his assessment was the right one and, and, um, I'm sure that that minister um, came to the well. He obviously came to the same view that yes, yes, this is the right assessment. You're absolutely right. Um, so the implication being that the reality of power is that you have to be able to sit with these decisions and make them confidently. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And if you find just exactly, and if you find yourself questioning your own judgment, then this is not the place that you should be. You should not be. You should not be putting yourself in this position. Mm. Find a, 
a more peaceful existence, doing something else, helping out in some other way. Um, and this, this particular minister had had a long career um, as an advisor and official in various capacities and, um, you know, a highly successful career and was much loved by all of his colleagues, including, including Keating, right? So mm. this was not a person without talent, far from it, far from it. But it found himself in a position that in which he was uncomfortable and uh, a position of power, and the power was, or the exercise of the power was, um, I guess, uh, killing him slowly, but killing him. Right. Anyway, the second <laughs> second anecdote I'll tell. This is now in the new Parliament House, but two very senior business people came in to talk Keating as treasurer, and he was probably also deputy prime minister by this time. I'm not sure, but anyway, certainly treasurer, obviously, to inform him of a decision that they had reached to merge their two national institutions, both large corporate entities. Uh, and this was the first Paul had heard of it. Um, and, but he had, he was a bit curious as to why the two had sought a meeting with him and a meeting under, you know, it was, there was a time constraint and we have to see you today. And they didn't say why, at least in the meeting request, but we have to see you today. It's very, very important, critical. And so when they arrived, he asked me to step in to really just to be a witness to the meeting. And I was blown away. <laughs> the, the two, and, you know, and since I've been in very senior positions in the corporate world myself, and, um, but as a young policy advisor, what I saw was the, the, these two people who were absolutely certain that what they were doing was was in the national interest, like it couldn't be questioned. It must have been. Um, and they were merely, as, as a matter of courtesy, informing the Treasurer that they were going to do this. Um, I don't know if they knew that the Treasurer, under various bits of legislation, one in particular, had the power to prevent them from doing what they'd already decided they were going to do. I don't know if they knew that. Um, but when he said to them, you're going to do what? I saw them sit back colour drained from their faces and they went on explained it again and he said you think you're going to do that well yes and he said like hell you are you're not going to do that no way are you going to do that they're absolutely shocked and Paul had had no briefing on this issue he didn't know what was coming um but he had this, look, it's more than instinct. By then, he had such a robust policy framework in his head that he himself was capable of bringing some pretty sophisticated analysis to the issue that had been presented to him. And knowing Perhaps it was instinctive, I don't know, but knowing anyway that 
this can't possibly be in the national interest for this to happen. And he blocked it. And that was that. Mm. And they were both furious and devastated, these two, um, the two CEOs, when they, when they left the room. And I thought, well, I thought a lot of things. <laughs> I learned a lot from that. Um, but it was another, it's another anecdote in the exercise of power that I'm sure has never been recorded anywhere. Uh, well, not, not publicly. Um, which tells you a bit about the sort of person that Keating was. It, it, he, when he took a decision, he would be absolutely comfortable with the decision that he took. Uh, and he had that ability. He didn't always get it right. But I would say over the years that I spent with him and working closely with him, and of course, even after I left his office, because um, he six months later became prime minister, I continued to work with him in a different capacity, obviously. But I rarely saw him take a poor decision. Now, he did take some, but it was rare. People tend to focus on those that were poor, and that's understandable. Um, but amongst the plethora of uh, huge decisions that he found himself having to take on the basis of necessarily limited uh, or incomplete advice. He was, um, well, in my view, he stands well above any other treasurer that I've ever come into contact with. Well, raises a couple of questions. One is, so, so he obviously left high school at the age of 14. Yeah. And that was sort of the end of his formal education. Yeah. Didn't have any economics education. No. Learned it all on the job. Yes. And obviously, as you've described, had an incredible intuitive grasp of mm. the economy. Mm. How far can intuition take you in economic policy making? Like, is it necessary and sufficient? Oh, it's certainly not sufficient. Is it necessary? Uh, is it even necessary? Um, helpful. <laughs> <laughs> certainly helpful. <laughs> Good intuitive instinct is... Uh, is certainly helpful, but then relying upon it to the exclusion of analysis and the exclusion of engagement with, uh, with advisors uh, would be uh, very, very dangerous. I mean, there's a lot of things that make good intuitive sense that I've seen in my career that are just nuts, mm. you know, just nuts. And um, so you wouldn't want to rely on it. <laughs> So is Keating the exception to that rule? Uh, in my uh, – I've seen others who have pretty strong intuitive grasp. So I wouldn't say that he was the exception, but I would say an absolute standout, yeah, an absolute standout. Um, you know, I, but the, people are – people's minds work differently, right? Um, some are extraordinary intuitive thinkers. I had a, um, and I, I won't mention a name either, but I had in the department uh, as an advisor 
somebody who um, these days is a very, very wealthy, highly successful person in the private sector, very uh, and has quite a profile. And he was working in in the treasury. Um, and he was deeply, uh, most days he was upset. I mean, deeply upset, like often in tears. Um, and I spent quite a bit of time with him because he was clearly brilliant. Uh, and discovered eventually that the reason for him being upset was a frustration in, was he, he saw it as a frustration in the uh, capacity of people he was talking to to understand why he was right. Fair enough. And I saw it, I think, I think the, I think the true, I think it would have been more honest of him to admit that his source of frustration was that he couldn't explain to others why he was right. And we're talking about really complex stuff, right, without going into the subject matter. It was really complex stuff. And he could see the, he could see the answer just like that. Bang, that's it. That's what you got to do. But he couldn't explain why. And so he was forever finding himself in heated arguments with other people who, you know, also had first-class honours degrees in several disciplines, if not PhDs, who, you know, had always been top of their class right through school and university and blah, blah, and who couldn't see what he could see and who would not accept that he had it right, and particularly because he couldn't explain why he had it right. And <laughs> it got to the point, you know, where I, I and I just, uh, I, I had a hunch that his, uh, uh, I don't know whether it's inductive reasoning powers, I'm not sure that that's what I was seeing. But anyway, I had a hunch that he was kind of, he was un- unbalanced in the sense that his intuition was really, really strong, but I had a suspicion that the uh, kind of linear analytical abilities were not so strong. Because after all, if they were, how come he wasn't able to explain it to other people whose minds work in that linear sequential sort of fashion, you know? And so I took one of the one of the debates that he was engaged in. And I, I produced the, the algebra and the calculus that, to me, constructed the formal argument that, that analysed the thing. And, and I came to the conclusion that he was 95% right, which blew me away, actually, because I, I, thought, I thought that's highly improbable. Like, I thought he might be 50% right, but he was 95% right. And I gave it to him and I said, look, could you just check, just check this? And weeks went by and eventually he came back to me. And again, he was in tears. And I said, what's, what's, I just don't understand what's wrong. And he said, he said, I can't understand your mathematics. And I said, well, I don't understand. I just do not understand. How the hell, how on earth? Could you be capable 
of 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 analyzing this complex problem without being able to understand this, which to me was a relatively routine um, bit of analysis. Yeah, you know. And he just he said, "Well, I I just can't." Right. So, can you rely on intuition? He can. He's a fabulously wealthy person, done incredibly well. <laughs> he can rely on intuition. Yeah. Would would I want him to rely on intuition and run the country? I'd be a bit worried. Okay. Hmm. By the way, I, I think I know who this person is. We can talk about it oh. afterwards, but okay, right. Okay. <laughs> Um, another reaction to your second anecdote about Keating, your description almost reminds me of someone like a, like an expert cellist or painter or basketball player in flow state. Yeah. Like someone, someone in flow state who's completely confident, has almost a grace in what they're doing. Grace is a really good word. Yeah. There was but it was almost like he'd made an art out of the use of power. Oh, that is so insightful. And I reckon that's dead right. And, and it did look graceful to me. Even the brutality, there was grace in it. Mm. Even, yeah, and the way that he would wield that sword and, yeah. um, and the damage that he would do with it, there was artistry in it. Uh, theatre, um, yeah, and 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 grace, uh, it, and and it it's it's you know, it um it, that comes through most of the things that he got involved in, because he wasn't he wasn't involved exclusively in economic policy, right? I mean. A great appreciator of art and architecture, of history. His command of those those disciplines too was, uh, uh, well, anyway, relied to a very large extent upon instinct and intuition. Mm. Um, and if he were here, he would say it's all the same, mate. He would. It's, you know, being able to see the big picture. Mm. He would say it's all the same. He he would find that the sort of the way that academics approach issues, um, where they find themselves getting narrower and narrower and narrower, and they say, "Well, of course, we need to in order to be able to dig sufficiently deep to you know make uh, real progress." I doubt that he'd find that. I doubt that he'd even understand what they were talking about. Yeah. For him, there's a, it's all about finding the patterns mm. and the truth is in the patterns. Mm. Did, did interacting with Australian political leaders in Canberra make you more or less inclined to believe in the great man or woman view of history? Uh so I guess you've got this dialectic both. between it's yeah. people who influence history or it's like yeah, forces yeah. that shape yeah, yeah, history. Yeah. So both. And um there are you know, we've had leading politicians who have said things like, 
the times suit me. And I think that's quite revealing. And um, uh, generally, I think when they have said it, it's been true. Um, like they haven't said it just to inflate their own egos. I think it's probably been true generally that the times have suited them. But, but of course, the other way of putting that is that other times probably wouldn't have suited them. They might have been absolute disasters at other times. Um, and yet there are also leaders that we've had who were able to change the times to suit them, right? And I think Keating was in both camps. I think um, he was capable of taking, well, really, maximising, maybe not maximising, maybe that's too strong, but um, uh, exploiting as much as anyone could possibly imagine exploiting the opportunity presented by the times as they were. But then he was also capable of um, shifting the narrative, changing the narrative, you know, from uh, like he created, he created the debt and deficits narrative, right? He created that. That wasn't there. He created those times. And then he used what he had created to enormous effect to build support for extraordinary um, economic transformation or a set of policies that were going to produce and did produce an extraordinary economic transformation, right? Now, of course, it, it, is, it is likely that had he not cast the challenge in the terms he did, you know, the Banana Republic and so on, had mm. he not done that, at some stage we would have found, this, Australia would have found itself in a crisis and having to make those big changes anyway. And so, you know, maybe you could argue that, well, he was only 10 years ahead of his time. <laughs> well, God, if only we had leaders who were 10 years ahead of their time, right? <laughs> now, the, the debt and deficits narrative was a, was a sub-narrative yeah. of a broader narrative, which you term the Australian mercantilism yeah. narrative. Yeah. And Keating kind of unleashed both of them. Yes. They were effective in his time, but they've obviously plagued the Australian political discourse yes. in decades since. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can you just talk about the origins of those narratives, why he constructed them? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So the the debt and deficits one, um, his his concern was that um having um taken big steps to open the economy up and and really the steps that, that that had been taken at that stage were to float the currency um, and to abolish capital controls. So to allow capital to flow into the economy and then, and, and of course, to flow out of the economy. And um, uh, he was, um, and, and so we had a bumpy ride, right? I mean, the the economic outcomes, the macroeconomic outcomes were quite volatile in those years following those two things, floating the currency and um, and abolishing, removing capital controls. Um, and there was no, um, at least by, by 1986, which is when he made the Banana Republic statement, there wasn't a lot to show for it, right, in terms of improved economic performance. Sure, We'd come out of the recession, but we're going to come out of the recession. The drought had ended in early in the early nineteen eighties, right? Um, 
but things had not improved so much that the budget was showing any signs of getting back or, or getting anywhere toward balance. So we still had a big um, budget deficit. The currency was under continual downward pressure. We had what appeared to be a widening current account deficit. Um, should that have worried him? Look, at, <laughs> I don't know, but it did. I mean, he he did worry about these things, right? Uh, it didn't. It wasn't part of a narrative that he could. wasn't part of a nice positive narrative that he could construct, right? It was a it was uh, something that that really worried him, and there was this uh, concern. I, I don't think he would. I don't think he was the person who first articulated the concern about Australia's increasing reliance upon short-term capital inflows from offshore, particularly debt flows. Um, but he was deeply uncomfortable with it, um, that, that Australia had, uh, because it was continually running current account deficits, it was therefore relying upon the rest of the world to finance those current account deficits. Um, and a lot of the funding was coming in in the form of uh, short-term debt financing. And if it wasn't coming in in the form of short-term debt financing, it was foreigners wanting to buy up property and, oh, God, you know, that's another, that's also not very comfortable. And and um, and he got it, the way that he chose to frame it or frame the narrative was that um, at some point, if we didn't get on top of this, at some point Australia would lose flexibility and maybe even sovereignty in respect of its economic policy settings. Mm. And so that it was better that we take matters into our own hands, take the decisions ourselves about how we were going to respond to being a small open economy um, in a world of uh, very large flows of global capital. Um, and how we could um, insulate ourselves against the risks associated with that. And his answer, and look, he wasn't the only person who came up with this answer, and there were a lot of academics too who said, well, you know, uh, what you're talking about is a, and this is true, it's just a tautology, you're talking about um, uh, a gap between national saving and national investment. That's right, so it's just a simple piece of, arithmetic that the current account deficit is simply equal to the excess of national investment over national saving. So maybe Australia's got a chronic saving problem, right? And that's in two parts. There's a public saving problem. Well, that was clear from the budget papers, right? Succession of budget deficits getting worse and worse and worse and worse. And we've also got a private saving problem. And um, and it was true that... Um, Household saving on international standards were pretty low. Uh, um, <laughs> of course, the irony is that um, in addressing his efforts to uh, lifting um, public saving, i.e. reducing the budget deficit, uh, and also to some extent lifting private saving, although that really came later with superannuation, private superannuation, but it's only that first bit. In, in in fixing the the or appearing to fix the structural budget position, what do you know? Um, uh, capital flows into Australia increased, <laughs> and 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 the capital flows were financing a spectacular investment boom because the rest of the world said, 
all of a sudden, Australia is a great place to put your money to invest in product in in an enhancement of productive capacity, right? And so there were all these new investment opportunities that opened up in Australia, uh, and, and that was I, that's his true legacy, in my view, on the economic front, is that we had this enormous investment inflow. And then even though there was the recession in the early 1990s, as we came out of the recession, it just kept powering on, right? And it powered on because of the, the way in which he had uh, educated the world or re-educated the world about the sort of place that Australia is and how they should think about Australia. Australia is actually a great place to, uh, to invest. And the current account deficit just widened and widened and widened, right? Even though the budget deficit had closed, so um, deeply, deeply ironic. Um, but nevertheless, um, and, and and the narrative in and of itself is flawed, right? I mean, the debt and deficits thing. Well, it's incomplete, but it's seriously incomplete. I mean, it's so incomplete that in the wrong hands, it's deeply flawed. Mm. Let me put it that way. Um, but nevertheless. Um, and, 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 it did, and it did lie behind uh, the extreme measures that were taken in the late 1980s or early 1990s that actually did tip the economy into recession. And, you know, there's no resiling from that. I don't think there's any resiling from that. Yet it is also true that it supported a, an extraordinary investment boom that actually rebuilt the economy, restructured the economy, mm. um, and, and allowed the economy to produce... Uh, rates of productivity growth that hardly through the 1990s that hardly any other economy in the world had ever produced at any time, including us. Is the debt and deficits narrative not long for this world, given that as of 2019, we've been in a current account surplus? Um, well, well, no. So, well, so why are we in a current account surplus? And the reason we're in a current account surplus is because investment has collapsed. Right. That's the reason. Yeah. Um, and that's the problem. I mean, the problem, we, sh we shouldn't see this as a good thing. And would Keating see it as a good thing? Would he say, ah, try, you know, this is a triumphal moment for me. We've, we're actually converted a current account deficit into a current account surplus. I think if he were to, and I haven't had this conversation with him, but I'm pretty sure if he were to look at Australia's rate of business investment, he would be absolutely appalled. Um, and he would understand that with the sort of business investment rates that we've got in Australia now, the sort of investment rates that, I mean, investment as a proportion of gross domestic product, so low. We've, the only other times in our history that we've seen rates of investment this low is in the depths of recessions. And yet we've been here for years now with these uh, investment rates, he would be appalled and he would understand that that's a principal reason for declining productivity growth in Australia, the undermining of living standards, um, the lack of growth of real wages. He would get all that and he would be appalled by that. So he wouldn't regard it as a success uh, story at all. He would want to see, um, he would want to see that um, investment rate lifted. Now, the... By, uh, by the early 2000s, I think I had managed to convince myself that the debt and deficits thing was no longer useful. 
um, and that it was time to move on. Um, I guess the, the, the view that uh, I guess I had at the time and, and I think all, all of my colleagues in official circles would have had a similar view was that, look, provided you've got um, high-quality domestic policy, <laughs> we took it for granted, right? <laughs> I mean, this is ridiculous, but we did. We did. Until the beginning of this century, we just took it for granted that we were always going to have high-quality domestic policy settings, right? Um, and an absolute commitment to uh, first-rate transparency with respect to policy setting and so on. You know, uh, we've got an independent central bank and all this kind of stuff, you know. Um, uh, provided you've got that, you don't need to worry about the rest of the world financing your current account deficit, even if it is going to increase to significant proportions of GDP from time to time. Who cares? They will do it because... Um, you're such a good target, you're such a good place to invest, right? Because you've got those wonderful policy settings. And that's that's what I thought. Um, and I thought that uh, I was thinking that right through to <clears throat> 2006, 2006, um, as part of a, a program of work that really began after the Asian financial crisis in 1997, 98, which really didn't affect Australia at all. Uh, and that kind of confirmed the view that, you know, well, our, our policy settings are so good. Look, we didn't even suffer contagion in the Asian financial crisis. And actually, uh, our economic performance during that period was so good that North American commentators, including very senior ones, started calling, dubbing Australia the miracle economy. Mm. Um, but in 2006, as part of a a financial sector assessment program run by the International Monetary Fund that came out of the oh, interminable meetings um, that followed the Asian financial crisis. Um, we in Australia received a visit from a very smart team of IMF officials who, and I remember uh, I was a member of the, um, the Council of Financial Regulators at the time because I was Treasury Secretary. That's a, there's a, it's a four person council that's chaired by the Reserve Bank Governor. The Treasury Secretary sits on it. The Chairman of APRA and the Chairman of ASIC uh, sit on this four-person council. And we had a preliminary meeting. It was like day one of this group being in Australia. And the mission leader said, look, and we'd, we'd supplied them with boxes and boxes of uh, documents before they arrived in Australia. So they were incredibly well briefed, you know, and he said, um, thank you for all the material you've provided. And I'm pretty sure, like I can't prejudge this, but I'm pretty sure that in six months' time when we come back and talk to you, we're going to say the Australian financial system is very robust. You know, you've, you're doing everything right. But there's one thing that worries me. <sighs> oh, what's that? He said, the one thing that worries me is your reliance upon short-term debt flows to finance what's going on in this place. And it's all intermediated or largely intermediated by your domestic banking system. And he said, I don't actually quite know what to make of it, but it has me a bit worried. All right? And I'm thinking, oh, he's a debt and deficits guy, right? <laughs> uh, that's what he is. Um, 
anyway, we politely wished him well and off he went. And six months later, he came back with his team and he said, well, you know, this has turned out very much as I thought it would. Australian financial system is in really good health. Um, you've got very well uh, regulated institutions. Your regulators are world class. You've got you've adopted all these relevant international standards. Blah blah blah. But there's one thing that worries me, and he said after six months it worries me even more, <laughs> and that's your reliance upon um, short term debt flows. So then we had a conversation about, it. and I remember saying to him. Um, it, Let's let's think that through. So in what circumstances, so this is 2006, right? In what circumstances should we be really worried about that? We've done everything we possibly can in terms of policy settings and, and uh, institutional settings and so on. So in what circumstances would we have to worry about the fact that we're getting, we are reliant upon this flow of capital from offshore, uh, short-term debt, even if it is short-term debt, you know, why should we be worried about it? And we had a bit of a discussion about it and eventually, and I remember saying to him, I think what you're saying is that this is something we really should worry about if the global financial system collapses. And he just smiled, right? And we, we just smiled at one another and had a bit of a chuckle and that was that. <laughs> but anyway, they, they, they printed the report in 2006 and it does, you can go back, you can dig it out and it has that concern in, in it. it. It is in it. It's sitting in there saying that I'm a bit worried about it. That's 2006. And two years later, that Lehman's collapses and bang. And what do you know? That was our Achilles heel. That was the thing that, was problem number one for us. And a huge problem was this reliance upon short-term capital inflows. It was the debt and deficits issue, recast, but nevertheless, right. there it was, was our Achilles heel. I have, I have three specific questions about that FSAP report. Yeah. And then I'll, I'll come back to the narratives question. Yep. So the first question is, does it really matter if the debt isn't denominated in a foreign currency? Ah, you've you've got okay. So we did see this as a um, a big advantage for us that we were able to um, sell debt in Australian dollar, Australian dollar debt. Right. Um, the the issue though is that um, if the debt is denominated in your currency, then the interest at some point the interest rates you pay are going to reflect expectations of bilateral currency movements, right? So if the people lending you the money think, oh, there is a risk, a substantial risk that the Australian dollar is going to depreciate, right, then they will demand a higher interest rate, right, to cover the uh, currency loss uh, in the value of the asset that they hold, mm. you know, debt for us, asset, asset for them. So it can be reflected in interest rates. Of course, and the, the reason for your question is that there's no question about your ability to repay the debt in Australian dollar terms because you can always print money, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, the but, Reserve Bank can be a lender of last resort. Correct, correct. But it can only... Oh, well, it, it, mm. look, if you, were, if you were borrowing in US dollars, to some extent the Reserve Bank could also be a lender of last resort, right, provided it's got sufficient reserves. But pretty soon it's going to run out of those reserves, right? 
mm. of US dollars. So, um, and you want to avoid that. So it makes sense, obviously, to be able to issue debt in your own currency. So you you are then in control of the question of whether you can ever repay that. And um, creditors, those lending you money, they, they can drive some comfort from the fact that they will uh, get their money back, but they're going to get it back in Australian dollars. And what are those Australian dollars going to be worth? And they may be worthless. And so, um, I mean, relative to the dollars that matter to them, which is generally US dollars. And so those, um, and so they, uh, in order to protect their own interest rate, are going to be demanding higher and higher interest rates. And so that's the, that's how the cost is reflected. So right. yeah, it matters. Yeah. My second question about the FSAP report is to what extent is offshore wholesale borrowing still the key vulnerability of our financial system? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and that's and that's why I said in, in response to your earlier question, I, I that even though we're in a current account surplus position, I don't think um, we should be sanguine about the debt and deficits narrative. I mean, we've got to be careful about uh, the way in which we interpret it. Um, but the the um, one day, um, hopefully, uh, our investment rate will bounce back. Mm. And when our investment rate bounces back, um, our reliance upon offshore capital, uh, including short-term debt, is going to increase. Um, and uh, now, look. Um, that doesn't necessarily imply um, uh, that we're going to have the sort of extreme volatility ever again that we had in the global financial crisis. And it may very well be that, and I know, I mean, there were, there were people, including in the Reserve Bank and very senior people in the Reserve Bank, who even in the middle of the global financial crisis said, mm, well, you know, it makes sense for the government to guarantee these debt lines as a form of insurance, but really are the capital markets going to remain closed for an extended period? Or is this just going to be a short-term thing until people sort out, you know, who they can trust and who they can't trust, you know? And, and as soon as they get around to figuring out who they can trust, they're going to look at Australia and say, well, we can certainly trust them, right? Because um, they never miss a payment and, uh, you know, look at their, their track record. Um, but, uh, uh, but the general view taken at the time was that it was worth taking out, uh, quite a lot of insurance, even if the insurance was going to be expensive. Turns out it wasn't expensive for the budget at all. We actually made money out of it, but I mean, I, would I be courageous enough to say that we should never expect to see a repeat? of anything like the global financial crisis, which at its core was all about counterparty risk or really about um, people's views on whether they could, the extent to which they could rely upon um, undertakings that were being given by their counterparties in the financial system. And they just lost confidence, lost trust. Mm lost trust and it's trust that you know holds the whole thing together really i mean contracts of course but 
<laughs> but really, in the in the moment, it's trust. When you're picking up the phone and doing a deal, can you trust the person on the other end of the line? Um, and that's what that's what fell apart really in the global financial crisis. Turns out, the activities of governments were sufficiently swift and and large. Um, uh, as to be able to rebuild a sufficient level of trust in a quite a quite a short period of time, will that always be the case? I don't. I don't know. And I just think that. Well, I don't think we should assume that that will always be the case. And and there is therefore, I think, uh, a risk that's inherent in. Um, well, you know, what I was going to say is that there's a risk that's inherent in uh, a world of uh, mobile capital flows. But even if you cut yourself off from the rest of the world, this risk of one part of the system losing confidence in another player in maybe the same part of the system or even a different part of the system upon which they rely, that's still a fundamental question, right? So it's really at base, uh, how confident can you be um, that the uh, claims being made by your counterparties and the undertakings that they're giving giving you that they can be relied upon? Mm. Um, for the most part, it's been good, but... Um, I mean, more than good, right? I think I think actually the ability of the global financial system and national financial systems to be able to intermediate flows of capital that go into building productive capacity and allowing people to buy houses and all, you know, everything really, um, is is an extraordinary success story for for economics, really. Um, but it, but there is that. Fragility, or is it a fragility? Anyway, look, there's an, a risk that's inherent in it, and you can do a lot, of course, to manage that risk, but there will always be residual risk, always, sitting out there in the tail somewhere, right, um, that uh, most times you can ignore. Turns out you can <laughs> uh, safely ignore what's sitting out in that tail, but every now and again that tail is going to whip you, right? <laughs> My third F's up question is, by the time the financial crisis struck, only three of the 183 IMF member states hadn't completed their F's up. Yeah. And one of them was the United States. Yeah. How much would it have helped the US if they had that F's up report or was the pain already baked in? They wouldn't have taken any notice of it. Because of the politics. Um. Well, I don't know if it's – it's certainly not big P politics. Um, there's – Right. It, it, it is that the IMF um, – I think generally the IMF is incapable of criticising the United States in any meaningful fashion. Right. Well, at least it was. I don't know if it's, if that is still the case. So that's the first point. Second point is – were the IMF to do so, I don't think the United States would have taken any notice. Uh, and and why? Well, I just look. 
um, I just think the domestic scene, and you can call it politics, the domestic political scene then in the United States is impervious to international criticism. And that's what this would have been seen, would have been seen as an international organisation taking a potshot at us. And I think that's generally true of uh, international organisations, just the general. I'm no expert on the psyche of the United States as an entity, if it's legitimate to talk about such a thing, but but I don't. But I think they're pretty impervious to international criticism, right? Maybe this is part of the when people talk about U.S. exceptionalism. Maybe it's part of what they're talking about is yeah. that the United States sees itself as standing apart, mm. and um, there's. Um, I mean, in, I, I delivered a speech at the ANU in two thousand and four, um, which was a. And it was a Bretton Woods sort of function, and um, and I reflected in this in this speech that um, on the uh, on the history of the Bretton Woods institutions, um, and their what I what I saw as their declining um, effectiveness, in part. Um, in part, it was a consequence of their own success, which is that, remember, when they were established, they were established in a world of fixed exchange rates. And the IMF and its uh, its principal lending programs um, were actually designed to forestall or deal with a balance of payments crisis in a country that's got fixed exchange rates, right? Where, as we were talking about before, it experiences capital outflow and a central bank for some time can actually uh, meet the outflow from its reserves, but then the reserves are drained very quickly. This is what we saw in the Asian financial crisis, you know, Bank of Thailand, I don't know how many days of reserves they had, but it disappeared pretty quickly, right? And uh, and then the Thai bar just, just, just tanked. Um, and when you move to a world of um, flexible exchange rates, it's just much less likely that anybody's going to need to rely on the International Monetary Fund for support, for financial support, because how do you have a balance of payments crisis in a world of, fix, of flexible exchange rates, right? Well, I guess it's possible, but um, but it's it's just very unlikely. It's, it's probably not the problem you're going to be dealing with. And so did countries really, in, in this world of flexible exchange rates, did they really have to pay that much attention to what the IMF was saying? One of the good things about Australia is was was that in that period, certainly up to the global financial crisis, <clears throat> we were as a community, broadly defined, <laughs> highly sensitive to international criticism, whether it was the OECD, the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank to some extent, not the United Nations somewhat deplorably, but anyway, I mean, that's they could criticise us all they like about the treatment of asylum seekers and so on and nobody seems to give us stuff, but... Mm. But if you're talking about financial uh, matters, then Australia has historically been quite sensitive to that sort of criticism. You don't see it in a lot of other countries, but you most you certainly don't see it in the United States. So, yeah, you're right. Um, the United States was was uh, one of one of only three. Anyway, in that 2004 speech, I said that um, you know I pointed out that there's no reason for the United States to take any notice of the IMF, and yet I said that, um, and this was true at the time, that the United States was, had become the biggest 
debtor nation in the world, right? And it, it was borrowing um, from the rest of the world to fund its current account deficit. And, of course, it was actually borrowing most, not certainly more than half. And, and on, in some months, all of its borrowings are being funded by the People's Bank of China, right? So it was selling U.S. Treasuries to the People's Bank of China that was just rapidly building up uh, huge stores of, of U.S. Treasuries. Um, and, I, and I just said, um, and I thought it was kind of obvious, that the biggest risk to the global financial system right now has to be the United States and the quality of its domestic financial system. That was in 2004. Um, <clears throat> and the, the IMF had drawn attention to this earlier in 2004. This was not a novel proposition. It's just nobody took any bloody notice of it. And certainly in the United States, they didn't. But when I said it in Australia, a lot of commentators got stuck into me. He said, what the hell are you talking about? Blah, blah, blah. And it's unnecessarily alarmist. And anyway, it's not true. And blah, 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 blah. Um, the United States should have been acting on its uh, financial system fragilities through those early years of the 21st century. When I, when I um, uh, after the collapse of Bear Stearns, uh, found myself accompanying Treasurer Swan on meetings in Washington and New York. Uh, so this was early 2008. It was before Lehman's collapsed. And I had, uh, we had, we had, it was actually uh, the treasurer, of course, who was uh, uh, the principal um, uh, interlocutor in the, in the meetings, obviously, and I was there supporting, but, but I was absolutely amazed at the things I learned about the poor quality of US financial system regulation. I mean, absolutely gobsmacked. Hmm. Um, and um, I did say to, and I remember we were walking down the steps of the Federal Reserve <laughs> and I said to Wayne Swan, because we were reflecting on the rescue that the Federal Reserve had um, had been instrumental in or had organised the rescue for uh, Bear Stearns and, and I said to Treasurer Swan, I said, God, heaven help the next US investment bank that gets into trouble. And he turned to me and he said, why do you say that? And I said, they're going to let it go. They're going to let it go. And so when Lehman's got into trouble and they let it go, I was not at all surprised. You knew that because they'd been so defensive in the, the meeting. Hugely defensive. Right. Like I couldn't believe how defensive. And I, you know, I'm not going to name names uh, of who we were talking to, but I could not believe how defensive um, they were, and um, and it was anyway. I formed the view that they had been so uh, beaten up over what they'd done by I don't know by whom I have no idea. But anyway, so they were so shell shocked they wouldn't do it again. Hmm. Um, today, of course, they would do it again, right? I mean, I think they're different now. It's a different. It's a different institution, but in those days, and you remember uh, in the UK as well. I mean, it was Northern Rock that that was earlier, if my memory serves me correct. And before Northern Rock collapsed, you had Mervyn King as um, governor of the Bank of England, 
mm. talking about the evils of moral hazard, right? And he was he was trying to get out. I think he was actually trying to get out ahead of all this. He saw that there was a possibility of financial institutions collapsing, and he wanted to lecture the policymakers in the United Kingdom, and I understand they took umbrage at this, small wonder, but he wanted to give them a lecture about the evils of moral hazard. And there were people in the United States who had a very similar perspective, were also convinced that moral hazard was such an evil that you had to be prepared to allow even systemically significant institutions to fall over, uh, even if people's lives were ruined as a consequence. People had to learn, <laughs> even if learning the hard way, about um, the risks that are involved in um, the economic system that we have. It's gobsmacking. Before we move on, what if I grab your dog's blanket over there and hang it on the window so the sun's not shining in your eyes? It's kind of irritating, really. Do you want me to, do you want me to try something? Yeah. And while you do that, take a look at Ned. There he is. Oh, my God. <laughs> That's wonderful. Actually, oh. it will probably move around that way so because the, the sun will go in that sort of arc, won't it? But no, 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 I can move a little uh, if that's okay. If I move this around. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I reckon that'll be fine for a while. Yep. Oh, that's much better. Yeah. Move as much as you like. Take the mic with you. Oh, okay. To go back to the mid-80s when Keating was constructing the Australian mercantilism narrative and yeah. the debt and deficits narrative, yeah. at the time, did you have any sense that these narratives would eventually metastasize? No. No, I didn't. No, no, no. And, <laughs> oh, God, now you make me feel really uncomfortable. So... Because I, I'm now asking myself the question, suppose I did, what would I have done about it? Mm. And I was so um, impressed by what Keating was doing. I think my, if, I'm, if I'm to be honest with myself, I, I don't think I would have dissuaded him or sought, not that it would have been effective, but I don't think I would have sought to dissuade him from using it, even though, even had I seen how it was going to be brutalised, really, um, by the Australian political system subsequently. I mean, that's a... I've never reflected on that question before, so thank you for asking it. <laughs> and I, I feel a bit uncomfortable answering it, but I, I think I'm... I think that is the truth. I I think... I mean, I, do, I, don't, I don't... I'm not generally in the... Um, ends justify the means camp. Not generally, because I think that so many of the things we regard as means are significantly important ends in their own right. Mm. Um, yeah, but I think I would have forgiven him this one, and uh, and I forgive him in retrospect. Uh, you know, I mean, I don't, I don't think one should blame him for having constructed that narrative just because others have used it for base political purposes. What gives a politician a talent for crafting compelling narratives? Because presumably it's not like it's, you know, smarts or intelligence isn't sufficient. No, so there have been plenty no. of very smart politicians who've yeah. failed miserably at this. 
Yeah. What gives one the ability to be good at crafting political you know, narratives? Again, I, I I feel like I almost have to answer this question the way I imagine Paul Keating answering it. And I I think he would say um you gotta be a storyteller. You've got to be comfortable with telling stories. I mean, more than comfortable, you have to like telling stories. Um, and it's more than being a raconteur, you know. It, it has to be stories that um, expose people's minds to things that, either things they would never have thought about or to thinking about things in a completely different way, in a way that they'd never thought about them before. Uh, and he had the capacity to do that, right? To um, just completely wrong foot you, um, then to get you to think about an issue in a completely different way, um, and then to make you feel comfortable and safe again. And that's that's a really, I think, it's quite an extraordinary ability. But but if you're not drawn to the storytelling business, <laughs> then it's probably not a game for you, right? Mm. Actually, my younger brother said to me somewhat unkindly the other day, and he's a mathematician, uh, theoretical physicist, and he said to me um, somewhat unkindly, he said, and yet it's true, he said, is economics really anything more than storytelling? Well, it's probably not. Not really. Storytelling through models. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Storytelling through models, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's the models that give you some confidence that there's an inherent logic in the argument. Mm. Okay. Even, even though you have to accept that the model itself is, is going to be flawed. I mean, it's going to be flawed necessarily in respect, in respect of scope yeah. because a model can't possibly... Uh, incorporate everything that you see out there, and it'll be of no use if you try to construct such a model. But it's also going to be flawed in respect of the assumptions upon which it has to rely, right? Um, and so it's necessarily going to be flawed in those respects. But even even accepting all of that, it's the model that's going to give you some confidence in the intellectual rigor of the argument. But then you have to convert that formalized model uh, into something which is uh, a really compelling story, a story that grabs people's attention. Mm. And, and, and more than that, and it's not just a story, you know, there's something, there's something quite unusual about these stories that we've been talking about, which is that you want the listener to become a part of the story as it unfolds. You're not telling, a, uh, you're not telling an historical story. You're mm. not telling a story in history. You're actually talking about a story of, yes, the present and to some extent the past, yes, but more importantly about the future. Mm. And you want these listeners to be a part of that story, players in that story, participants in that story, and feeling good about uh, the development of that story as they go along. So it's mm. quite an unusual story telling um, quality really, yeah. that is needed of our, of our leaders. But it's always been true. I mean, I think it's always been true. And you go and read um, 
Shakespeare's <laughs> uh, words on uh, the great leaders, you know, on which he spent a lot of time, um, all flawed characters, of course, but nevertheless, um, their stories were largely about um, encouraging others to be part of a different future from mm. the one that they were, you know, from the one that was actually confronting them, mm. whether in the near term or the distant term. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, yeah, you're right. That's that's what separates political narratives from history. Political yeah. narratives connect past, present, and future. That's right. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I want to ask you some questions about treasury and the public service, but let me let me segue to that from narratives by asking this question. So traditionally, there's been this distinction between the sort of work that a government agency like Treasury would do, which is almost like the object level policy analysis. And then the storytelling aspect or the crafting of the narratives is left to the politicians, to the yep. government. In recent years, economists like Bob Schiller have started talking about the importance of narratives yep. in economics yep. as like something that should actually belong in the the object level economic analysis. Yeah. Um Bob has a book called Narrative Economics. Yeah. Um, yep, 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 yep. Should Treasury actually be prepared to provide advice to the government on economic narratives and yes. which and which economic narratives will work? Yes. And um and my answer to that's unequivocal. Um did that happen when you were in Treasury? Yes, it did. Yeah. It did. It did. I mean that that's actually what motivated uh, a lot of the work that we did on well being, right? Uh. That was about um uh us. I mean, we weren't asked to do that. Nobody said to us, oh, we'd like you to think about a wellbeing framework to guide the way that we, the government, think about economic, social and environmental policy. No, we, we constructed this, this wellbeing framework ourselves to be able to recast narratives that we presented to government um, in the expectation that the government would then um, change its own narrative or broaden its own narrative to deal with some really, really difficult issues. Um, think of uh, um, entrenched Indigenous disadvantage, for example, where, and that's not a success story, right? But the narrative did change. The narrative did change. Um, the I think it, I think, look, it, it did. I think without the change in the narrative, it would have been really highly improbable that the closing the gap narrative would have been constructed. Mm -hmm. I just don't think it would have. Um, uh, and the notion of, um, which has not been well respected, but nevertheless is understood within government and has been for a long time, the notion of involving um, Indigenous people at the grassroots level in uh, discussion of, oh, sorry, uh, uh, policy design, um, the design of policies to that, that will improve their circumstances, that notion, uh, I think the wellbeing framework did make a contribution to, to that as well. Not that it's a novel notion. I mean, it certainly wasn't a novel notion at the time. The, many Indigenous uh, leaders had been banging on about it for decades, right? It was just that there was, 
there was a tin ear in Canberra, really, I think, um, until we started having those discussions about a broader framework for thinking about uh, progress, mm. uh, economic, social and environmental progress, but particularly economic and, and social. Uh, and so, yes, I, I think... Uh, I, I do think that is that should be um, a core competency of uh, an economic policy agency, um, and that was my view at the time. <laughs> I remember <laughs> here's an interesting thing when um, oh, I was a I had shortly become a uh, what's called a Bantu SES officer in most government departments in Canberra these days that that position is referred to as a first assistant secretary. In the military, it's a two-star general, right? So that's the level we're talking about. I mean, in the army, it's a two-star general, um, major general. And um, I attended a residential uh, leadership course uh, in, I think it was in Barrel, if my memory serves me correctly. It was five days. And um, one afternoon, we had a fellow come in full of uh, enthusiasm with uh, literature that had been, that had come out of the, Harvard Business School, and it was all about strategic alignment. Um, <laughs> and he had this, and I don't know whether this, I don't know whether he was relying on any literature or whether this was just his own bright idea, but the proposition that he was putting to these relatively senior public servants was that we should think about strategic alignment in the same way that businesses think about strategic alignment. And, of course, what he was talking about was businesses identifying their customer base and then understanding everything about their customers. You know, what is it that makes them tick? If you want to be successful as a business, you really got to understand your customers, right? These days it's called customer centricity. I mean, who would have thought, right? <laughs> as if this is a really amazing idea. And um, uh, but, then, but then he was saying, and what that means is that uh, in the private sector, um, that means you should think about even um, – your uh, your organisational structure uh, in terms of how you can best um, uh, match the personality. You can see where this is going, I suspect. But anyway, match the personality of your customers, right? And then he said, and that's how you should be thinking about your own departments. And he went into it, you know, um, you really got to understand what makes the minister tick. Everything about the minister, and and I was getting increasingly uncomfortable. Right, <laughs> there were twenty-two or twenty-three of us sitting around the table. And at some point, I put up my hand and I said, "Excuse me, what if your minister is an idiot?" <laughs> and you know, he was he was uncomfortable. I think everybody in the room was uncomfortable. Right. Um, but seriously, what if your minister is an idiot? Um, and then, uh, look, actually he dealt with the question. I thought, uh, I was surprised at how well he dealt with the question. But then, um, then I said, so are you saying, I said, sorry, let's, let's take this up one other level, another level, right? So what then about the minister? How should the minister be? constructing his or her own persona. I mean, who is their customer, right? Um, 
Or is it even valid to think about a minister as having a customer um, or a set of customers for whom they are seeking uh, to deliver high-quality product? Um, And maybe it's the case that ministers are just responding in the main, just responding to events. And then, and this was, I know, quite a radical thing to say, but I said, is it never appropriate for a public servant, even a senior senior public servant, to go out into the public arena and construct such an event? The narrative for such an event anyway, right? Because maybe that is, in certain circumstances, the way to have maximum impact. In certain circumstances, maybe you should be seeking to influence the exter- the truly external environment, the one in which both you and the minister are operating, right? And not just rely on a conversation between you and the minister as to what should be happening. And I think, I mean, I've got some support for that view subsequently, not in that room, not at that time. I think everybody said, not everybody. Uh, there was a rear admiral who thought it was quite a reasonable proposition, <laughs> although he didn't disclose that at the time. He disclosed it to me the following morning at breakfast when he said, I didn't realise how similar Treasury and Defence are <laughs> and, until you made that comment. Um, and I said I said to him, well, you shouldn't assume that this is Treasury speaking. This was just me. <laughs> um, but, um, but it is a really – but subsequently I think there was, at least for a period, there was uh, an acceptance of – senior public servants um, having voice in the public square, provided they were not embarrassing the government nor embarrassing the opposition, you know, not embarrassing the political players, but nevertheless talking about the challenges confronting the country and in general terms about the sort of policy directions that would, would probably have to be followed if we were to avoid the risks, the traps associated with with those challenges or, or make the most of the opportunities that those developments present for mm. the nation. There was there was some uh, level of comfort with that. I, I would say that during the 10 years of the former government, um, there was uh, no comfort with that, excluding in the national security and defence space, which is quite extraordinary. Um, uh, but I do think that's the case. And I think we lost a hell of a lot. Uh, because of that. You see, one of the things, one of the deep flaws, is it a flaw? Anyway, oh, well, let me talk it through, see if it's a flaw. I think one of the deep flaws in our system of government is that uh, we rely upon um, adversarial instruments for almost everything, right? So, oh, well, our political system is adversarial. Our legal system uh, is adversarial. Actually, the capitalist model is adversarial in its construction, right, that um, you've got businesses out there doing nothing other than seeking to maximise profit. It's up to the rest of us. Actually, that was the phrase that Milton Friedman used, Milton Friedman used, right, the rest of us, to use our agency as citizens in a democracy. He didn't quite use that phraseology, but that's what he was talking about, to um, to force these, oh, to, to elect politicians who would frame Rules and regulations, and um, uh, and and um, would resource regulatory agencies and the judicial system such that it would um, force 
profit-maximizing businesses to operate um, in a competitive manner um, and without um, fraud or deception being um, being inflicted upon the public. That in its construction is adversarial. It sets the corporation up um, against the rest of us, right? Mm. And the rest of us having to get in there and muscle it. So much of it is adversarial, and the conse- one of the consequences of that is that the sort of uh, institutions of civil society that you re- that you necessarily have to rely upon to um, uh, to keep uh, the political actors um, honest, or at least to call out the bullshit. Um, is that they get seduced into reporting the contest rather than what is at contest, right? Um, so they become uh, no more than uh, enthusiastic commentators of a, gladiator- a gladiatorial spectacle, right? You even think about, think about uh, as I have done and had to, uh, the way that the financial services or banking and financial services royal commission was constructed, uh, it became, and I think quite deliberately, a reality TV show. And what was reported overwhelmingly wasn't the, s- the substance of what was being discussed, but rather the arguments that were being put on either side and who performed better, you know, so <laughs> who won the gladiatorial contest. Uh, and you can understand why, but you need to have uh, a voice of the experts that's external from all of that and which precedes all of that, that is calling out the bullshit when the bullshit is being espoused by the politicians or whoever they are, really, the redneck commentators or whoever, right? And I think we've lost a lot of that. And maybe uh, there's a lot of people who who point to social media here and say, oh, well, it's the fault of social media. You know, it's just kind of um, oxygenated um, the, the place so much that um, considered analysis from respectable commentators and even considered reporting of what's going on by responsible journalists it's just all all too hard you know um and, and you know that's probably true but only to some extent I, I remember um even before i entered uh the public service when i was still a junior academic i was a junior academic in new zealand in the last years of the Muldoon government right there was no social media there was media <laughs> there were two publicly owned television stations TV1 and TV2, right? And when Parliament was sitting, every afternoon when Parliament was sitting, Sir Robert Muldoon would call a press conference. There were two TV cameras in the room and TV camera operators and maybe one or two or three journalists. And he would say something outrageous. And it would lead the evening news, both channels. So when New Zealanders were sitting down, tucking into their dinner, watching the evening news, they saw... Sir Robert Muldoon saying something really outrageous but quite entertaining, um, usually highly divisive, you know, 
uh, disparaging his opponents or, and quite often disparaging Australians, by the way, because it worked really well in, in New Zealand. <laughs> uh-huh. Punching up. Yeah, punching up. Exactly. <laughs> and at the time I thought, you know, at the time I thought, this is just populist crap. How can these journalists allow, why do they even show it? Right now, I know you why I showed it because he healed the purse strings, right? But actually, I think there's always been a temptation on the part of even good journalists to report on the punches being thrown uh, more than the reason for the punches being thrown, right? So it's a real, it's a real trap. And I, I think that in Australia over oh, many years now, we've lost something that I think we once had. Maybe I'm just looking back with rose-tinted glasses, probably am, but I think there was a time when we had um, media that were uh, uh, less inclined to be seduced by that kind of stuff and more interested in the substance of the issues but we also had academics who were in the public place, experts, I mean, genuine experts, right, who were in the public in the public space seeking to educate the public about these things. Now, we haven't lost that entirely. And um, publications like The Conversation have gone a long way. And I think, I mean, what you do, right, what you do in um, getting to the heart of the issues and not just the personalities, right? That kind of stuff, I think, is really, really important. And we need more of it, right, to hold this show together um, because there are dangers inherent in the adversarial contest that really could blow the whole place up, right? This is what Trump was doing in the United States. Um, Sure, he he was... being advantaged by social media, I would wake up, as you would, every morning in Australia, but in, in the probably 12 months or 18 months up, to the last, up, up in the run-up up, up to the last presidential election, you would have woken up every morning to the lead story on the news being something amazingly ridiculous that Donald Trump had tweeted overnight, right? The miss, whole world was. I miss those days. <laughs> yeah, right. I, see, I think a lot of people do. <laughs> right, they do, they do miss it because of the of entertainment in it. Yeah. But here's the thing: the Robert, Sir Robert Muldoon thing tells me that even without social media, you would have been waking up to that stuff. Mm. He would have found a way of getting it on the TV cameras, and we would have got it. If it's sufficiently outrageous, we would have got it right because people are just so drawn to the drama and the theatre and the you know. Uh, as much as they say, "Oh, I hate politicians," they love the entertainment content in the political argument. And then the last thing I'll say on this point, well, I should never say it's the last thing I'll say, but (laughs) you know what? I have had very senior ministers open up to me and tell me things as troubling as, you know what? I've never had any interest in policy. The only reason I came into parliament was because I was a good barrister, and I enjoy the argument. Because if you're going to have that sort of adversarial system where what's valued uh, is the perceived quality of the of those engaged in the combat, those are the people who are going to be drawn to it, right? 
think also of the um, the dumbing down of debate that you get when interviewers, unlike what you do, because you've let me rabbit it on and on and on and on, but when interviewers say, look, we're about to go to a break, by which they mean we're about to earn some money from uh, advertisers, uh, we've only got a few seconds. I'm going to ask you a really complicated question and I want you to give me a three-word three, li- uh, a three answer, right? And wh- what are you going to get? Well, you're going to get a three-word slogan and small wonder that eventually Australia ends up with a politician like Tony Abbott, mm. right? What do you expect? Um, so there are real risks in this mm. and we've got to be alive to those risks and we've got to make sure that the other institutions of society um, are capable of and really do contribute to a better informed public. And I do think that leaders of public institutions, including institutions like the Treasury, do have a role to play here. Mm. That comment that Minister made to you is disturbing. For me, it's also indicative of this kind of culture of individualism that emerged in the West beginning around the 1970s, where now you have this this whole class of politicians for whom a seat in parliament is a prize rather than a responsibility. Sure. Mm. That's the goal. Yeah. 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 And hanging on to it at all costs is the goal. Yeah. No matter how many deals you have to do with the devil. Yeah. And regardless of what policy you actually get done. Yeah, yeah. A few more questions about the public service. So when I was preparing for this conversation, I read a Canberra Times article about you from 2006 that mentions you putting in 100-hour weeks at the Treasury in the 80s and the 90s. Yeah. Um, And, you know, it also mentioned this anecdote about how in the mid-80s you would slip a tax draft under your division head, David Morgan's door at like 3 a.m. Yeah. By 8 a.m., He's up and he's read it and yeah. responded to it. Yeah. 100 hour weeks is a lot. Yeah. Was that A, something unique to Treasury because it's got things like budget week it has to deal with, B, something unique to the reform era and the sort of esprit de corps of the 80s and 90s, C, something unique to senior officials or D, something unique to Ken Henry? Uh, B and A and probably in that order. Um because wow. I was not unique. Um, it certainly was not unique. There were there were a team of us who were working those sorts of hours. And wow. look, not all the time, obviously. I mean, you can't work those sorts of hours all the time uh, and survive um, for very much time. Mm. Uh, but there were several times in my Treasury career uh, going for several months at a time when, yes, I did work those sorts of ridiculous hours. And, uh, and the only reason I know it's it, it's a hundred hours is that um, d- during the nineteen eighty five uh, process, when you know I referred to this earlier, where there was just a maybe a bit more than one handful of uh, policy officers who were working on the uh, the content of what became called the draft white paper on tax reform, and at some point, um, Paul Keating, observing the sort of hours that we were working, um, said to Somebody more senior than me in the department, uh, uh, are these people getting paid any overtime? And actually, I don't know if you know this, but at a certain once you reach a certain level in the public service, you don't qualify for overtime, right? 
Anyway, we were all at that level. No, there was one person in our group who was below that level, mm. but all the others were at that level or above. So we didn't qualify um, for uh, for any overtime at all. And, um, and so the answer was, oh, well, actually, no, I don't think any of them are being paid overtime. And he wasn't aware of how many hours we were working, but he knew that it was ridiculous. And so... Somebody senior in the department said, well, I think you better keep timesheets for the next three months. Keep timesheets, right? And we'll see if we can do something. We're not compelled to do anything. You don't, you don't deserve overtime. But <laughs> overtime pay. But we'll see if there's something that we can do. And that was when I um, – and so I did. And then I, and, and then I trotted it all up and over the three-month period it averaged uh, 100 hours a week. Um, and that was, and ironically, and I should have been smarter, I should have figured this one out. But of course, when you, when you calculate how much overtime I would have been um, entitled to for that three-month period, it was larger than my annual salary, right? So it was so big that I didn't get a cent. <laughs> I should have been smarter, <laughs> right? I should have said I was 70 hours, you know, or 60 hours. Even 45 hours, I would have got something. Yeah. Yeah. But at 100 hours, I got nothing, right? But but during budget week, uh, or more than budget week, during the run-up to the preparation of the annual budget, there are people who do work those hours in Treasury. Yes, mm. there are. Mm. Um, and then at, um, at particular times, like that 1985 tax summit, uh, yeah, it does happen. And it's... <laughs> um, of course, it's not appropriate, right? And yet, there is something in it that uh, speaks volumes about the sort of organisation that that place is, at least was, and I'm sure still is. And there is an esprit de corps in it. And that, and um, and look, some politicians are working those sorts of hours too, right? I mean, mm. people don't. Most people have no idea of the hours that politicians work. And maybe it's not all work either. I mean, maybe it's not all what you and I would regard as being worthwhile work, but it is part of their job. Uh, or they won't survive in their job if they don't do it. And so that that kind of stuff does happen. But, but I, I mean, it's also true. The D is also true because I could have opted out, you know, mm. obviously. And I, uh, I could have said this game's not for me. And, of course, there, there were times when, I had that feeling, of course, but you go on uh, and it's for the reason that I mentioned an answer to your very first question. You know, it's just those periods are just a blast, an absolute blast, and you, you are full of adrenaline uh, and you just go on and on and on. And, um, and you know, it's probably, a, a, it's probably both a good thing and a bad thing that humans are capable of that sort of thing. You see it. You see it all over the place, not just in policy development, right? Um, and sometimes it's for the good, and sometimes it's actually for the bad. Hmm. So, Ken, you can correct this if it's wrong, but hmm. I heard a story that you famously wrote Prismod in 1991 on about 20-odd sheets of paper one night, and those sheets of paper may have even been a translation from like a the back of a coaster or a napkin. Um you know, hastily, hastily written on uh, one, late one night in a Canberra restaurant. Is that is that anecdote correct? And how much of policy happens like that? Um, you know, like a brilliant public servant just kind of whipping something up versus like a slower, more formal process. 
I don't know the answer to that question. Oh, sorry, the first part of the question, that's that's broadly correct, uh, at least the architecture of Prismod. Of course, Prismod is a huge model, um, mm. ended up being the, uh, I think the, the OECD certainly described it as the most detailed um, economic model that had ever been constructed. <laughs> it probably was. Uh, but there's a reason for that, which we can go into if you want to, but it doesn't really matter uh, for this for this question. But um, um, so it's broadly correct, the architecture. Um, how much of how much of what happens um, in policy circles uh, happens like that? Um yeah, I really don't know, but <clears throat> but I, I do I mean I've seen enough instances of um people having brainwaves and <laughs> those brainwaves um subsequently translating into into big things that um you know I can say it happens a bit. Um probably doesn't probably doesn't happen enough. Um the, I mean, it's easy to say that the public service is structured in such a way that it's it has insufficient flexibility and gives people insufficient authority to be able to behave in that manner. That's probably true, but it's uh, it certainly wasn't true of the Treasury. Not from the day I first joined it. No. One, of, one of the strengths of that institution was that you could be a... Well, you could be a graduate recruit and you could have an idea that challenged orthodoxy and you could expect people to take notice of it. I mean, they might tell you it's complete crap, you know, and go away and grow up. And <laughs> but that's also part of what, well, was, was a strength of the department was that... Um, whether you're going to be listened to or not, whether notice is going to be taken of your idea or not, dependent upon rank, not at all. I mean, just not at all. So, um, I mean, I hope that's still true, but but it was true. Um, and, yeah, I saw enough of those people having a, a brainwave and, and things happening as a consequence to, to know that um, it, it is quite a feature of uh, or was – has been quite a feature of uh, public policy. Mm. Yeah. So Prismod took you and about five other people about five months to build. Mm. How long would such a project take nowadays? And what what was the main constraint back in 1991? Was it software, hardware? Oh, actually, I think it would take longer now. Really? Yeah. Because I don't think people would work those hours. <laughs> <laughs> but also... Also, that I mean, even when that um, project was launched, those launching it knew, and everybody involved in it knew, all five of us knew that this was just quite unreasonable, right? I mean, you you couldn't, you wouldn't have been able to. John Karen gave you about four months. Yeah, yeah, and that was in a um, there was in a, a you know a written document. I mean, it was a letter to the secretary. Uh, 
to say this is what I want and I wanted to have this capability, blah, 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 blah. Now, look, in truth, we could have done a, um, a slimmed down version and, um, uh, and we could have achieved, well, I guess an acceptable um, outcome in a less stressful way, but uh, several of us, several of us, the total was five, um, a couple of us had been involved in um, uh, a similar sort of exercise back in 1985, and we were um, we were aware, we, we carried scars from the uh i've used this word a lot today but brutality of the <laughs> of the battles that were fought around the modeling that we had done back in 1985 and having survived that experience we were determined that uh what we produced in 1991 would be technically unassailable that nobody would be able to say um this is this is shonky. You've you've cut corners. You've ignored blah blah blah, and and so you know it 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 the data demands were absolutely immense. Um, a lot of data, <clears throat> what you would call data, had to be constructed from scratch. So, I mean, think about this, right? Maybe this is one way of uh, of describing the challenge. So. Imagine a um, a matrix that's got 109 different industries identified. So that's your columns, 109. Yeah. And then it's got 1,400 rows, and those um, those rows identify commodities that are purchased by those 109 industries. So 1,400 commodities purchased by 109 industries, right? That's got some scale. That's big. Uh, And then you decide to somebody, and this is in the days before the GST, so we had, I think at the time it was the world's most complex indirect tax system, Uh, multiple rate wholesale sales tax, uh, excises, and these things were not just levied at final point of sale, right? I mean, wholesale sales tax is obviously not. Um, So they applied to industry purchases of uh, commodities or products. And uh, we had to know with some level of precision how the wholesale sales tax revenue was distributed across all those cells, right? Well, nobody would have done that before. And why the hell would they, right? Um, It took months for a couple of people. (laughs) It was only a couple of people because we couldn't afford any more. In terms of resources, it took them months to get their head around that question, and it's just a. I mean, you could say, well, it's just a, you know, it's just a statistical exercise, and but they had to do it with a uh, a high level of precision. It had to be unassailable, and of course, what they discovered. I mean, they discovered all sorts of things like um, we should be collecting more wholesale sales tax revenue if these, you know. <laughs> If the base is really that big, um, then we 
how come we collect, we're not collecting enough wholesale sales tax revenue? And, and then in other cases, we're getting more wholesale sales tax revenue than that. Um, that suggests that the, the ABS's input-output data are wrong. Uh, and so we had this toing and froing with the ABS, and they did amend the input-output data on several occasions because of this exchange. It just doesn't make sense. We can't make sense of this. Um, so we ended up creating data sets that had never previously existed, and we ended up uh, helping the ABS revise. I'm not saying a complete transformation, don't get me wrong, but nevertheless revise in important ways data sets that have been around for quite a while. Now, it probably helped us that one of the members of the team, and indeed a fellow who, uh, a very close colleague of mine, unfortunately now deceased, but who um, went through the 1985 exercise, we sat shoulder to shoulder working those 100-hour uh, weeks through the 1985 exercise, and he was also a member key team member of this exercise and in earlier at an earlier time in his career he had spent 10 years as head of the input output section in the Australian Bureau of Statistics and he actually compiled Australia's first ever input output tables and that is I mean I I mean it's just chance right um just extraordinary actually to, to clock back a bit because this is this is I think this is actually part of the answer to your question, or maybe your earlier question, but in the 1985 uh, exercise, um, uh, we needed to answer questions like this. Well, suppose you replace the wholesale sales tax with a broad-based consumption tax that applies in the following way at the following rate with input taxing of certain transactions in these places, these places, these places, zero rating or exemption in these places, these places, these places, right? Adjustments to excises in blah, 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 blah. Now tell me what happens to the CPI. Mm-hmm. Well, nobody had ever done anything like that before. And the task was handed to one person because we were a small team, right? <laughs> and this guy, he was given the task because he had previously worked in the Australian Bureau of Statistics at some stage in the National Accounts area, I think. He then went on to become quite a good journalist um, years later. Um, and he spent weeks nutting his head through this and he produced a piece of paper that was more than 50 pages in length. It was probably 55, I think that's from memory anyway. And I saw this and I, I thought, oh, my God, you know, this is, well, firstly, poor bugger. And then secondly, um, So now we're going to be asked, well, hang on, what if I tweak this right here and tweak that there and tweak? Then what happens? So we're going to have to wait another three weeks while this poor bugger goes through all of this again and produces his workings manually, you know. And, and, and I thought and, and I said uh, and, and I went to this, this uh, colleague who I knew had worked in the input-output section in the ABS and I said, you know what we need here is, a pr is what? in economics is referred to as a price input output model. I've never seen one except in the textbooks. Um, I don't know if one's, one even exists anywhere in the world, but that's what we need and that's what we need to construct. And he just beamed at me, right? And he said, oh, well, you know, um, I suppose, he said, I suppose I do know more about the input out, Australia's input output system than anybody else. <laughs> 
<laughs> so maybe we could give this a go. That was back in 1985. But see, had I not, had he not been there, and had I not had that, I'd call it an insight. But I mean, it's you know, uh, it was, it's not that big an insight. But but do I, and then ask the question, and then get the engagement from him, which was like, you know, was enthusiastic. Like let's let's give this a go, right? Um, then I think maybe that poor bugger would have been, you know, every time he would have say, well, it's gonna, this is going to take weeks and destroy my life for several weeks. And actually it wouldn't have worked. It just wouldn't have worked. Um, so there is something of chance in these, um, in these endeavours, I think. You can't. And you can't plan for it. I, no, you can't plan for it because you don't know what bit of kit, what bit of technology you're going to need mm. to um, answer the policy question in a way that will provide the politicians with what they need to be able to run the argument, construct the narrative, um, convince the parliament. You know all of that, all of that kind of stuff. You just don't need. You just don't know. It's a fascinating glimpse into how policy gets made. Yeah. Um, it's also interesting that there are these decisions that affect the wealth of nations and they're based on, you know, the policy and the advice that the public service provides. Mm. And ultimately you can, you know, trace that back to one guy kind of yeah. hunched over his desk, yeah, yeah. working 100 hour weeks. No, it's true. And it all kind of hinges on the quality of his work. Yeah. Or her work. Or her work. All right. Yeah. But that, that is true. Um, yeah. It is true. I learned um, a fact about you when I was preparing for this conversation, and that is that you're colorblind. And I wondered whether that ever caused any issues when you were reading charts as Treasury Secretary. Oh, you, you are too well briefed. You are too well briefed. Yeah. And I, I know this became something of a running joke, particularly during the global financial crisis when there's like a red and a green line or something. Magenta. Magenta. Okay. Uh, magenta was the colour that I settled on um, to highlight. Uh, I, I wasn't even aware that such a colour existed because being colour blind, um, well, how? Why would I? But um, in in having in having charts prepared for me to look at and then think about presenting to uh, to Kevin Rudd in particular and Wayne Swan, uh, you know that group in the global financial crisis, I. Um, people got to learn that there were particular colours that they had to use. So there was a colour. I know they developed a colour palette for me. <laughs> Bizarre. But anyway, event, but, but it worked for me. I could see these colours and the most outstanding of, of which was this. Um, it looked iridescent but but magenta uh, colour. And, and I know Kevin Rudd at some point, he he said, "Why, why, why this car?" You know, and we had a bit of a bit of a joke about it. So he he uh, yeah, for years for years afterwards, he'd rib me about the the magenta line on the chart. And the magenta <laughs> line was always the one that I wanted to emphasise. So it was the one that I wanted anybody in the audience to take most notice of. I have no idea whether it stood out for them the same way it stood out for me. I, I have no. <laughs> <laughs> Two more questions about public service, and then, and then I want to ask about recession and financial crises. Yeah, 
So when Terry Moran was appointed Secretary of the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet in 2008, he said, and I'll quote him here, I've had a fortunate career having often been in jobs where I've been able to make a difference. It's not been about boring administration, but about improving things. The Benthamite concept that the role of government is to achieve the greatest good for the greatest number, end quote. And it got me wondering, um, I'm, I'm not sure whether you have thought about this, but does the Australian public service have a uniquely utilitarian atmosphere or are Mm. are all public services in Anglosphere countries naturally quite utilitarian? So I think most are, even those that don't think about it. Um, But no, the public service doesn't have that as a a philosophical framework, Um, uh, even though... Uh, <laughs> great chunks of it do. And look, most people in Treasury, most people in the Treasury would certainly start with a uh, utilitarian, indeed even welfareist perspective, you know, just some ranking of mm. of uh, outcomes to assess the relative merits of of different policies or different policy options um, and, and also to assess you know, things like the the big question, is human progress improving or is it not improving? Yeah. Um, and I have a lot of time for utilitarians and I've got a lot of time for that perspective, but it's not my perspective. Um, uh, I, I think that, uh, for example, I, I think that um, uh, there is a case for, uh, in exceptional circumstances maybe, but, but these exceptional circumstances are always present of um, <clears throat> improving the circumstances of the most disadvantaged in society, even if you cannot demonstrate that that lifts um, the sum total of utility across society. Um, I mean, it's and, and maybe that's, and, and there are a lot of utilitarians, I'm sure, who would be jumping up and down listening to this saying, well, that's just ridiculous because you can't even conceive of such a an intervention, you know, namely something that would improve the lot of the the most disadvantaged and would not also result in an increase in um, in aggregate utility. Um, but I'm not sure that that is the case, and I wouldn't want to constrain my thinking to um, possible policy interventions that had to satisfy that test. Mm. Um, The reason I ask is some people think that Australia has like a uniquely utilitarian or Benthamite political ideology Mm. sort of embedded in our political DNA from the days of Chartism and the harvest of judgment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it It really is powerful. In Australia, and maybe more powerful in Australia than in other places. And by the way, one of the other, and this is not by the way, actually, one of the really attractive features of that is that people don't get so hung up on uh, concepts of procedural fairness, like you know, rights and liberties and, and things like that, and and storm the barricades if um, you know if their individual personal liberties have been infringed in some arguable way. Mm. Uh, that's a that's a real attraction of the utilitarian discipline is that you just 
you're focused on the outcomes uh, rather than so you're focused on the ends rather than <laughs> rather than means if you like to go back to something I was talking about earlier and and you you are not going to be distracted by um, uh, or you're not going to allow concepts of procedural fairness to interfere. Um, uh, um, but then on the other hand, there are, you're on a slippery slope, I think, or at least my view, and I don't, I don't, don't want to insist on this, but, and I don't think I've ever insisted on it, but my own view is that um, there are some aspects of a, uh, a rights-based approach that are just, in some circumstances, so foundational, so fundamental that if they were not delivered by a system that was just focused on some ranking and and the aggregate sum of individual utilities, then the society might well be breeding the seeds of its own destruction. And I mean the most obvious the most obvious thing to say there is that uh, you've got to be worried about distributional consequences and not just aggregate. Um, and you can't <clears throat> you can't um, draw comfort from the fact that well you can draw some comfort from the fact that the aggregate condition is improving and that the majority of people are getting better off. You can draw some comfort comfort from that. But you've got to allow yourself to be embarrassed by or bugged by the fact that that some people really are missing out and um, and maybe missing out uh, for generations, mm -hmm. maybe. Um, and that it is um, incumbent upon people with policy responsibilities to pay particular attention to those cases, right? I think so. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, but there is a strength. Uh, look, yeah, I, I don't want to. I don't want to be. <laughs> I don't want to be too critical of the of those who are firmly wedded to utilitarianism because I think it, it has enormous strengths. Mm. I mean, I think in many ways governments have to be, people almost expect their government to be utilitarian. I think they do. Yeah, 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 I think they do. I think they do. And that's, that's look, it's got to be a hell of a good starting point, right? I mean, it's yeah, better yeah. than anything else yeah. that I can imagine. Yeah. Um, it's just that I want them to be particularly focused in particular areas and, and not and not allow themselves to get relaxed by what's happening to the average or the majority or you know, whatever. Yep. So many biographies have been written of political figures in Australia. Is there anyone in the public service, living or dead, who would be befitting of like a 700-page recollections of a bleeding heart style biography? Are there any public servants who we need to know about? I don't know. Um, one, one of the one of the issues here, and it's it's it is actually quite problematic. Um, 
is that you know when I when I left the uh, treasury, of course. Well, not of course, but I did have a number of publishers contact me and say, oh, 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 would you like to write a memoir? And and I know other senior public servants been asked the same question. And for the, I assume the same reason. And I assume that what would sell such a memoir, a memoir is um, you know, a, a lot of stuff that um, would titillate people and uh, well, maybe I'm being unfair, but, you know, um, uh, things that are more about the theatre or the contest than the substance. But also, also, um, even when it's dealing with the substance of issues, what would interest people, and understandably, is, well, what did you advise? And how was that advice treated right you know what was the what was the response of the responsible minister and I, I said to the treasurers that I worked for that understanding the difficult position that this could place them in down the track I said to them I will never write a record of this I'll never write a memoir of this exchange you know you don't have to worry about my ghost coming back to haunt you at any time. Hmm. And without, because I felt that there has to be a very high level of comfort in the confidentiality of the exchange. Hmm. Right? Now, I've told you a couple of anecdotes, but not, not anecdotes I think that would, and I hope, certainly hope, would not embarrass any particular minister. Um, and I just wouldn't. Do that. I mean, anecdotes that come out of uh, those sorts of private exchanges that I had in absolute confidence, right? And it's, and I feel very strongly about that. So I think that aspect of the um, engagement between, or the nature of the engagement between advisors and um, and those charged with taking decisions. Um, uh, uh, yeah, I think um, I just don't think that that should be um, exposed in in books. So then the question that's left is, well, what is there left to write about? <laughs> um, and of course, this personal stuff. Um, but how important is that? I mean, I think even for politicians, it's it's taken on uh, an exaggerated level of importance. Um, certainly the public has a right to know, I think, something about the personal lives of politicians, but there's a level beyond which it gets um, uh, embarrassing for all concerned, I think, mm. and, and certainly distracting. Uh, well, it, it may be diverting, but um, but it gets distracting. Yeah. Mm. So, speaking of recollections of a bleeding heart, in in that book, there's this passage where Don Watson quotes Don Russell saying that from the treasurer's office, he had heard the economy snap like a neck in 1990. Mm. 
the recession we had to have finished before I was born. What what are your personal memories of the beginning of that recession? Wow. Yeah. So <laughs> wow, there were not many people in Paul's office at the time. It's not like, you know, those those political officers um well, sorry. Political's a wrong description. That's the wrong adjective to use. They um the, those parliament house officers um are not staffed. Sorry, were not staffed in the way they are now. So there weren't many people who have a lived experience of that, uh, and Don is certainly, uh, he was much, much closer to it than anybody else in the office. Um, He and Paul were, I mean, the weight was very much on their shoulders in, in respect of how to deal with that piece of news. Um, it had been, even before that particular uh, national accounts figure came out to confirm that two negative quarters, of course, well, once we got the first negative quarter, there was a high risk of a successor. Um, but in the, in the quarters leading up to that first negative quarter, um, I mean, we knew there was a significant risk that the economy would go into a recession. The the policy action that had been taken was um, was uh, pretty extraordinary, right? Um, on top of the fiscal tightening, which was being done for structural reasons, not for macroeconomic reasons, we, we weren't tightening the budget in order to... Well, not not principally in order to dampen domestic demand. That wasn't the principal purpose of it, except in a structural sense. We did want to uh, rebalance um, private and public net savings balances, but that was a structural thing. That goes back to the conversation we were having earlier about the current account and the contributors to that current account, of which uh, and the the response to it, you know, featured the very heavily the twin deficits proposition that was part of that debt and deficits narrative. But the monetary policy response was, um, you know, just huge. And uh, and it's well documented that Paul um, in uh, played a, um, a key role. I mean, he says, says it himself, he played a key role in the determination of the interest rate increases that... Uh, occurred during that period in the lead up to the recession and and Don would have been very much was very much a part of those conversations with Paul so they they knew that this was an increasing risk um, I, I've certainly heard that expression that uh, that they heard it snap like a no. did you say a neck yeah. I thought it was a stick, but anyway, that doesn't matter. Uh, well, maybe it does matter. Uh, there's quite a <laughs> distinction between those two. <laughs> oh, hell, that's a bit gruesome, really. Um, uh, yeah, so um, sitting where I was in the office um, with primary responsibility for micro and structural stuff rather than macroeconomic stuff, I mean, not that I was excluded from the macroeconomic discussions, it's just that uh, I was not as intimately involved as Don was, Don Russell. 
I I didn't have that sense, although I certainly had a sense that the place was at risk of slowing very, very, very sharply. And, you know, we did have discussions in the office about before the event um, about the macroeconomic policy structure and the risks that we were taking. Uh, and those were open enough conversations, several advisors with Paul, you know, Paul, this is getting close. Like, I mean, this, you know, this could happen. Um, is it is it wise to keep tightening? Um, should we back off a bit, you know? Um, um, and it's a, and it's a metaphor of course, it's a matter of a judgment, but also when Paul said in that first press conference that this is the recession Australia ha had to have, of course, he was pilloried for it. And, and of course, people thought he was being completely insensitive. But if you recall that anecdote that I told you right at the start, when he told one of his cabinet colleagues in 1984, uh, who was sweating on decisions that he'd taken, mate, maybe this is not the place for you, maybe it's time for you to go. There is something in the assessments that Paul makes and the way he communicates them in the moment that can come across as quite brutal and uncaring. But, but in respect of both of those, I would argue that one should look a lot deeper <clears throat> into what lies behind those those comments. And... In the years following, quite a few people came to the view that Australia would not have achieved the economic restructuring that it achieved in the absence of a truly deep recession, as ugly as it was. And I'm not saying that excuses it, but it's, it, it nevertheless may well be an accurate analysis that the... Um, High productivity growth that Australia enjoyed through the 1990s, and the big structure, the big change or restructuring of the economy that occurred as we came out of the recession of the 1990s, might not otherwise have happened. Mm. Uh, and so, and I, th I think most, I think actually where most economists would sit is they'd say. <laughs> it's probably a bit of a cop out, right? But which is that. Well, hang on a second. You should be, you should find other ways of achieving that massive economic restructuring. You shouldn't have to rely on a recession. Um, but I think they would also admit that, um, in the absence of that recession, uh, at that time, we would not have achieved such a rapid restructuring of the economy. Mm. I remember reading that you were haunted by one particular statistic that emerged from that recession. Yeah. And that was that more than something like 50% of men above the age of 45 who lost their jobs just never returned never to work. Never worked again. Yeah, which is crazy. I mean, not to put too fine a point on it, but um, that book I mentioned to you I'd been reading yeah. before we started mm, recording, mm. Wellbeing, Science and Policy, that Daniel Kahneman recommended to me mm. at the end of the podcast I did with him in the introduction, they mention 
the importance of employment and they note that workers who lose their jobs suffer in life satisfaction on a scale comparable with the death of a spouse. Yeah. Yeah. It's brutal. It is brutal. It It is, it, it is brutal. And, um, uh, yeah, that is, that's haunted me for a very long time. Uh, and it was certainly playing on my mind during uh, 2008. Yeah. Um, you know, actually my father is now deceased, but, um, and actually he died 18 years ago. Um, but uh, in that period, in the late 1980s, uh, as we were having these discussions in the office, I did say to him, look, it, this economy is just going nuts, you know, um, and it was. I mean, we, we were just having this extraordinary boom in the late 1980s. Inflation was one consequence of it, but it was only one consequence of it. And the place was going absolutely nuts. And I said, I said, you know, maybe it is the case that um, <clears throat> that the only thing that's going to stop this is a recession. Maybe that's unavoidable. And he said to me, he said to me, and it stuck with me, uh, particularly in the months that followed, he said, nothing excuses a recession. You can't allow yourself to think like that. Mm. My father not was not an educated person, right? I mean, he left school at 13 um, and was a timber worker almost all his life. Um, but he had that, that sense and had obviously seen it of colleagues of his who had lost their jobs and, you know, it just destroyed their lives, destroyed it. That was it, and they they lost the capacity, not just the opportunity to find another job, but they lost the functional capacity to go and look for another job. They'd just been so so devastated by the experience. I mean, I don't know if it's if it's like many of those who went to war and were, were not functional when they returned from war, mm. but it's something like that. I think mm. the trauma that that people suffer and the, the, the loss of, well, there are just so many so many um, elements of loss, aren't there? You know, loss of respect and or mm. self-respect. Mm. Um, uh, and, you know, um, loss of, yeah, loss of, certainly loss of pride in, in what they're doing for their families and so on, you know. Truly devastating. And I was... Um, and it's actually why, and it's no wonder that uh, Julia Gillard made a point of it um, subsequently, but I do remember on the, when was it? It was the second weekend, second Saturday in October 2008 when um, those four ministers uh, met with the first First serious discussion about response to the collapse of Lehman Brothers and Wayne Swan was in Washington, so he joined by phone, but the other three, uh, Julia Gillard, Lindsay Turner and Kevin Rudd, were in the cabinet room and she went straight to that point. She said, we cannot allow this to happen. And for that reason, and, you know, it, it hit me like a punch in the guts um, because it was, 
it had not been up to that point part of my advice to to Kevin Rudd and the and the other ministers, and it, it it just hit me with, I mean, huge force. And I just thought, of course, you know, this is the lesson that I learned all those years ago. It is exactly this, and that's all we need to know. It's, of course, there's a lot of other things we need, we can know, but all we need to know is that. Mm. In a senior strategy meeting of the Treasury in 2004, um, Martin Parkinson, who was sitting beside yeah. you, leant mm. over and remarked to you that you and he were the only two in the room with with uh, lived experience of the. 1990-91 recession. Mm. And I think you interrupted the meeting to say that, you know, we need to run some war games. Yeah, I did. I mean, we were, t- yeah, we were, we were having a discussion about, um, I can't remember, it was, um, I don't think it was just a macroeconomic policy discussion. And there were about 20 people, oh, 15 to 20 people in the room. Anyway, the most senior level of the department and we were talking, we used these discussions to discuss um, policy issues that were really so significant that they affected a large part of the department, right? Um, And in part it was to deal with the risk of silos that you get in any organisation, but it was more than that. It was part of um, building and maintaining that uh, a a treasury identity. and um, yeah, and it was in that it was in that conversation, uh, and it had been going on for I I don't know I can't remember how long, but anyway, it had been going on for a long period of time, let's say an hour. And it was at that point that uh, that Martin leaned across to me and, and made that comment, and uh, and again that that struck me with such force that I and it had obviously been something that. Uh, had been worrying me, I assume subconsciously, because I just immediately stopped the meeting. I said, stop, stop, stop. <laughs> stop. We've got to have uh, a different sort of discussion um, about these, these um, issues. Um, and I said, you know, I, I think we need to war game some scenarios. That's what we need to do. We just need to do that. And I said, you know, Martin has just mentioned to me, just made the observation um, about the depth of um, uh, experience in the in the department in in dealing with uh, recessions. Um, and let's hope we never have another one. But uh, we of all people. Um, we of all people uh, should ensure that um, we're the people the government tends to for advice if and when we find ourselves in that sort of position. And the reason I made, the reason I put it that way is that my, one of the other memories that I carried with me from the recession of the early 1990s is that when... Um, the res- the recession was confirmed. I mean, the fact that we were in one. The advice that came from Treasury was um, there's no case for a large fiscal stimulus mm. and that instead, of course, monetary policy 
should be eased, of course, uh, and that should happen immediately. But <clears throat> as far as the budget is concerned, you should rely upon the operation of the automatic fiscal stabilizers, right? Which just, <laughs> but <laughs> actually, you know, um, having reflecting on it and having gone through the um, about that recession and and then the. Uh, response to the global financial crisis and then having left the department of course and and observed from some distance the government's response to the to the pandemic i actually find that automatic stabilizer narrative uh quite stupid quite stupid <clears throat> for the reason that the way the automatic stabilizers work um, and what people mean by that is that when the economy goes into recession, the budget goes into deficit. Well, like, duh. The reason it goes into deficit is because people lose their jobs and tax revenue plummets. And because people lose their jobs, there are more people on the unemployment benefit. So spending goes up and revenue plummets. Uh, that's a consequence of a recession. Um, that doesn't bring the economy out of recession. It's just a consequence of recession. So you now got unemployed people. How does that provide any sort of fiscal stimulus to get people back into work? So it doesn't. It's just stupid. And so the whole proposition, and look, I'm probably doing a deep injustice to the, because I was in Keating's office at the time, right? I'm probably doing a deep injustice to those who were involved in framing the advice within Treasury at the time on what the government should do to respond to that recession of the early 1990s. But, and at the time, I didn't think it was stupid, right? <laughs> I just think it's stupid now, um, having had the opportunity to think more about it. So anyway, Treasury more or less said, sit on your hands, except in, except in the monetary policy area. Well, of course, government can't sit on its hands through a recession, nor should it. Uh, and so what happened was, the government, and now Keating's now Prime Minister, of course, rather than Treasurer, the government finds alternative sources of advice, and those are in other government departments, largely. And then, um, and so the Treasury finds itself sidelined in the process that's developing a policy response to a recession. Well, that's completely absurd, right? Completely absurd. Uh, it's perverse. And, and so I said to the group, you know, we have to make absolutely sure, we have to make sure that if we, if the country ever finds itself in those circumstances again, that it's the Treasury sitting across the, on the other side of the table from the Prime Minister, not some other agency that doesn't have our responsibility, doesn't have our training, doesn't have our understanding, can't possibly have prepared as well as we should have prepared for this sort of eventuality. And more to the point, what use are we if we're not at that table? So that's why we started Wargaming. What does a Wargame actually look like in the Treasury context? Like what's the output? Is it a model? It's model-driven. Yeah. So it's, it's model-driven. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you run, so you, you have... You have various uh, macroeconomic models and you run various scenarios yep. through those macroeconomic models that allow you to look at um, 
uh, well, firstly, to develop um, uh, a, a benchmark scenario, right? So just imagine that um, a component of aggregate demand would fall by this much. How many people would lose their jobs? Um, tell us a bit about where those people are. What sort of people are they? Um, um, uh, what would happen? What would the monetary policy response be or likely to be? So what would happen to interest rates? What would happen to the exchange rate? Because that's also a possible stabiliser that, that, that can be helpful, right, in um, uh, ameliorating the, the impact of that um, exogenous loss of aggregate demand in, in some place. Um, and then consider various policy responses. So how what sort of fiscal policy what sort of fiscal response would be required to address that sort of demand shock to compensate for it, if you like. Um, and then um, and you can do that all model based. So that's just model based, right? You can run various simulations and scenarios through that um, discussion. And then you get to the the really meaty part of it, which is, well, now now let's think about the timeliness of the intervention, right? So one of the, I mean, even when I was, uh, uh, well, certainly when I was, by the time I was uh, uh, an undergraduate student of economics, uh, I learned that one of the problems with using uh, fiscal policy as a macro macroeconomic um, instrument is that there are all sorts of lags involved in its use. I mean, there's obviously the recognition lag, like we, but that bedevils monetary policy as well. So we didn't know that the economy was in recession until well after the event, right? Mm. Because of the lag in the collection of national accounts and the publication of national accounts. And you can look at um, indicators. But you, you don't really know unt until that national accounts figure comes out. And so you, you've inevitably got the recognition lag uh, and then you've got the lag uh, involved in developing a policy response and then you've got the lag involved in implementation, like rolling that response out um, in some way. And that led us to having um, conversations about the, the fastest track means of... Um, contributing to aggregate demand and all of our war games all of our war gaming told us that you've got to get cash in the hands of households um and that's the there are ways that um allow you to do that uh quite quickly um and we had explored a number of those number of those ways in that war game uh, in that war gaming exercise which is why you know which is why when it happened and in, in, in 2008, our focus was on uh, very much on getting cash in, into the hands of households. Mm. Wargaming has to be done in secrecy. Uh, indeed. <laughs> you could say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm, um, I'm taking this to a, a, an interesting conclusion. Mm -hmm. um, and indeed, a lot of an economic policy department's thinking has to be done secretly yeah. because um, obviously you don't want to unnecessarily mm. negatively influence mm. the public's perception of the economy. Mm. Mm. Does that imply that it is impossible for the public to ever fully appreciate counterfactuals? Um, well, no. Um, so, uh, well, mm, I think there's a time dimension 
to that question, I think that's, um, well, maybe you don't want to go there, but <laughs> and, and maybe this is uh, maybe this is me seeking to squeeze out of a tricky spot. But um, you know, once once the decision's been taken, of course, it falls to it falls to the political leaders to communicate that to the public and the reasons for it, and to as part of the narrative um, construct the counterfactual. Mm. Um. But even then, I mean, it, this is this is really, really, really uh, tricky stuff, right? You know, when when we decided, when sorry, when on our advice, the Rudd government decided on that first fiscal stimulus package in October of two thousand eight, which was delivered before, or most of it was delivered before Christmas of two thousand and eight. Um, there were any number of critics who were lining up accusing the government of um, firstly being spooked and not knowing what they were doing, which was just a cheap political shot. Um, secondly, of unnecessarily alarming people about the circumstances that we're in. After all, the ABS had not said, guess what, we've had a recession, right? Um, so that action was all about forestalling uh, a recession dealing with that risk in advance. Um, and so there was no counterfactual there that anybody else had constructed. So the government had to construct it. And the problem is if it constructs the counterfactual, it falls into the trap that you've referred to where it can stand accused of having made things worse. And it was certainly accused of that um, by the opposition, the political opposition, and by a number of uh, uh, newspapers Um uh, so that is that is really difficult, right? But how else does a government explain the seriousness of the issue and why it has to take such exceptionally or such exceptional steps? You know, um, there is no way. I, I just can't see any way of avoiding it, and so you, you need a really, really powerful narrative to be able to carry that one. Mm. Um, it, it would be the same though in um, a national security context. Um, it's why, presumably, although oh no, I was a part, I was about to say I wasn't part of these discussions, but actually I was because I used to sit on the Secretary's Committee on National Security, <laughs> um, among other things. But you know that that fridge magnet that said "Be alert, but not alarmed." Yeah. Well, that's exactly the point. It's trying to walk that very fine line that you're getting to, right, that you're getting at. And it's exactly the same in trying to forestall an economic uh, crisis. Hmm. Has the public gotten better at um, thinking about nonlinearities and exponential growth as a result of events like the financial crisis and COVID? I think, okay, so I'm not sure. Uh, I think they have got more understanding of the need for governments to do exceptional things in exceptional circumstances. I would say that. And to act preemptively. And to act preemptively, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that much, yes. But that's when you're talking about a real crisis. What, what, what about if you're talking about um, a slower-moving 
uh, undermining of national capacity or national national capability, for example? That is an interesting question. I just, I don't think so. Um, it used to be said that, uh, and I think it, it was probably the OECD that described Australia in these circumstances way back in the, it could even have been in the 1970s, maybe it was the 1980s, that Australia is, and these these are not the exact words, of course, but Australia is um, has, has uh, demonstrated a, a great capacity to deal with crises mm. in the moment <laughs> and after the moment, um, but has not demonstrated the same ability to deal with things before they become a crisis. Mm. You know, that kind of slow-moving build-up of... Um, of um, imbalances or, um, you know, whatever the hell, you know. And so there are quite a number of those that um, you can see playing out in Australia or have been playing out in Australia for some decades. So, for example, the impact of climate change, the impact. I mean, at some stage, um, well, I, I guess, I mean, if, if, in respect of some of the consequences of climate change, like the increasing incidence and severity of uh, bushfires and floods and droughts, I think people are getting it. But in the early 1990s, when some politicians were trying to have this or run this narrative and engage the public, they were getting no traction at all. So that I think there is still some way to go. <laughs> to connect this back to leadership, I would go so far as to say that the real heroic virtues are actually best demonstrated by solving those slow-moving train wrecks. I agree with that. Not by working on the the kind of sudden crisis. Yeah. Yeah, and um, yeah, and of course. Um, as uh, as others in conversation with you, I'm sure would have would have noted. You know this this uh, extraordinary ability of humans to uh, discount probable future events because they're future. You know, mm. or they're in the long they're, they're out there. Um, hyperbolic discounting. Hyperbolic discounting. Exactly. Mm. Right. Yeah, it's a nice way of putting it. That's exactly it, and um, uh, that makes the task of such leaders uh, damn near impossible, mm. right? Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm struck. Actually, no, sorry, let me, ask, let me ask one question about Kevin Rudd and then I, I, I want to move on to this topic of reform and, and mm. leadership. So on the morning of the 29th of February, 2008, must have been a leap year. Um, yeah. You get a call to tell you that the PM is expecting you to be on an aircraft to Gladstone yeah. uh, for a chat in the air. Yeah. Um, and on the flight, Kevin asked you what happens to the Australian current account if- It's not how he framed the question, no. No, okay. it was, it was uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, it took me a while to figure out what the hell he was talking about. Um, no, the way he framed the question was this. Look, we the plane had just taken off. Yeah. Um, We'd levelled out. In fact, I think we'd been served a cup of tea and Wayne Swan was on the plane as well. And there was one other, um, I, ju- I just 
It's my fault. I just can't remember who it was. It wasn't a minister. It was an advisor. Um, and I was sitting opposite Kevin. Um, and so a cup of tea, so, and he leans across the table. And he literally said, what is the worst thing that can happen? Those, those are his exact words. What is the worst thing that can happen? No there context. was no introduction. There was no context, <laughs> right? For a brief moment, I thought, well, I guess we could fall out of the sky, you know. Uh, <laughs> I, I mean, I just had no context at all. And it wasn't until a long time later that he told me what the context of it was, which was that he'd not been able to sleep the, the night previous. He, he hadn't got any sleep at all. And he was, um, the question he was asking himself was, with what's going on in the global financial system, um, how might this play out in Australia? Uh, and we've been sending him briefing of the sort that <laughs> you're going to see, given our uh, the earlier past this conversation, you're going to see how absurd this is. But we, we had sent him briefing of the sort that said, well, Australia's got um, one of the best regulated financial systems in the world. Um, bank balance sheets are extraordinary, you know. Um, we, don't, we, we just don't see a high risk to the assets sitting on bank balance sheets. Um, there are no strong connections between Australian banks and foreign institutions that um, might run into trouble as far as we can tell. Um, you know, the banks have not uh, been big investors in these collateralised debt instruments and so on, which have been a feature of uh, other jurisdictions, exposure to the housing market. Well, of course, it's there, but we don't think the circumstances exist in Australia to uh, produce a, uh, a housing price crash. And, you know, the banks have been stress-tested by APRA on multiple occasions and blah, 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 blah. And we were not briefing the government on the exposure that the banks had on the liability side of their balance sheet, which is what we are talking about earlier, their dependence upon these international, uh, international capital markets for funding. Um, and so, and I don't know if that was what was in the Prime Minister's mind, Kevin's mind at the time, Either, but he was deeply troubled that there's some, there must be some exposure that we have to the global financial system that we're overlooking. There must be, but that's not how he asked the question. He asked the question, "What's the worst thing that could possibly happen?" <laughs> and and what he, so he 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 obviously just assumed that this same question was sitting in my head, um, and he wanted to know the worst thing, and then we were going to come back from that. Okay, that's the worst thing that can happen. How would we respond to that? Let's backtrack from that to something that's more likely to happen and how would we respond to that? And then what should we be putting in place now mm. to uh, to help us deal with that in the in the event that we find ourselves in that position? Um, and but but I I um once I uh, realized that he was talking about Australia's exposure to the international financial system, I said to him the worst thing that can happen. Well, among the worst things that can happen is that the rest of the world stops funding our current account. That's what I said. Um, and, 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 in, and, and more than that, 
I mean, the really worst thing that can happen beyond that is that they stop buying Australian government debt. That's about as bad as it would get, I think. Um, and when we went through <clears throat> possible um, responses to that, just what you might have to do, and he and I have agreed that I will never talk publicly about some of the things that we discussed on that plane, so I won't do it. Mm-hmm. Won't do it here, but um, uh, and then we and then we step back from the absolute worst thing uh, that could happen. Um, so that's that's a place where you do actually have uh, willing purchases of um, Australian government securities. So people out there all over the world who are lining up to buy um, uh, uh, treasury bonds. Um, and so then we had a discussion about what the government might have to might have to do uh, in those circumstances, and we did discuss things like um, possibly having to guarantee bank liabilities. Um, uh, I I don't recall what sort of discussion we had about um, a uh, a fiscal injection. Um, you know, actually, government spending more money, but that must have been in the conversation somewhere. Mm. Uh, given what happened subsequently, it must have been. Yeah. My question is, why was he? I mean, he he didn't really have like a specialized economics background. No, 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 no. no. He used why to tell was- me. He used to tell me all the time. He used to say, "I don't know anything about economics. I'm a I'm a student of Chinese poetry." <laughs> <laughs> so why was he so far along in his Thinking was he just getting like really good briefings from some other agency like no, DPMC no, no. or no 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 what was it like a temperamental edge that temperamental he uh, uh, is that the right word I think I think you were on the right word there but it, it's just um, he he was uh, you know he he was out in front of uh, any other leader of any country anywhere in the world in asking that question. I'm sure he was. Um, So it was the way that he was interpreting the briefings that he was getting about what was going on in international meetings and so on. And, of course, he had had attended uh, a couple where these these things, fragilities in the international financial architecture, (laughs) were being discussed. I mean, pretty abstract stuff, really. But his interpretation of it was, oh, hell, you know, this this could get really, really, really ugly. And he, and it, it's it's in the nature of him that uh, he has such a, um, he, he is so keen on detail and ensuring that every base is covered that that's what he wanted to do. He, he wanted to get on top of it. Um, on top of every contingency, because mm. it's impossible, but mm. that's what he wanted to do. Um, and he certainly <laughs> and understandably wanted some level of confidence that there were people in the public service who had some understanding of these contingencies and would be in a position to be able to provide him with um, advice on, on what he should do at the moment and in the moment. So... But, you know, so, um, I mean, an uncharitable way of describing his personality 
is that he's a control freak. Mm. But you know what? In a in a crisis, that's probably exactly what you need. Is mm. a control freak. Yeah. Um, and maybe that is exactly the behaviours that he was demonstrating through two thousand and eight, well before the collapse of Lehman Brothers. Maybe it is. Well, good on him. It's a good thing for Australia that he did. That's my view. So moving to the bigger picture and reform. Um, There's a bigger picture. (laughs) (laughs) There's an even bigger picture. I'm struck by the irony that you seem to have had a better experience of reform under a conservative government than a progressive government. You're struck by that too. (laughs) (laughs) So to, to make this clear... Howard put you in charge of the GST task force Mm. in 1997, Mm. Mm. um, spend about a year working on that. The government goes to an election to get a mandate. Mm. Then there's a couple of years to implement it. Um, The government even nearly gets rolled at that election in 1998. Yeah, lost Um, the popular vote. Lost the popular vote um, and just got re-elected on the basis of kind of the distribution of votes in some marginal seats. Uh, Um, And then- the negotiation of the the bill through the parliament is fraught. Brian Harradine famously rejects it in the Senate in May 1999 mm. um, with those mm. words, I cannot. Uh, in good conscience, was it? Yeah, in good conscience. In good conscience. Yeah, yeah, support this tax or something like that. Yeah. And then Howard negotiates with the Australian Democrats. He invites Meg Lees into the cabinet room in Melbourne. And so this really difficult complicated, um, Mm. potentially unpopular tax reform gets up under Mm. a conservative government and you're working closely with them helping to design and implement that. Yeah. On the other hand, fast forward to the Henry Tax Review and you come up with a whole bunch of things that are are actually intuitively popular, like the resource super Mm. profits tax, Mm. which, I mean, it's difficult to recall a poll that was against uh, what was, you know, colloquially called the mining tax. Yeah. Um, and that just crashed and burned. And on top of that, the vast bulk of the 138 recommendations weren't adopted by the Rudd government. Mm. So I want to get your reflection, looking back on those two experiences, um, what has changed in the Australian polity to make reform more difficult or was the example of mismanaged reform under Labor, um, more just an example of, of mistakes and bad management? Uh, so it could be those two things, and there's a, there's a third. Mm-hmm. I'll come back to those two things. Um, the third, though, is that, um, and it's very important, is that the, the GST package was the implementation uh, commencing on <laughs> 1 July 2000, of um, the core recommendation of a tax review that was published in 1975. The Asprey Review. Yeah, yeah. and it had been commissioned a few years before. Um, and there had been a number of attempts to implement that core recommendation. Uh, so Keating's 1985 tax summit package, that was a notable attempt to try to implement that core recommendation of the Asprey Review. Option C. Yeah. And, and in fact, that was, that was option C, 
uh, actually, I think we called it approach C, but never mind. It's uh, it's remembered as option C. <laughs> <laughs> option C is uh, uh, pretty much Asprey, Asprey, Asprey. That's pretty much what it is with income tax based broadening, things like fringe benefits tax, capital gains tax, and so on. Uh, and then um, personal income tax cuts overall reform the indirect tax system and a broad-based consumption tax, pretty much, you know, uh, which is pretty much what Asprey recommended. So 10 years later, that failed mm. uh, in spectacular fashion. Um, didn't get the support of anybody. I mean, absolutely anybody, apart from Keating and uh, the Treasury. Um, and then you have John Hewson in 1993 with his fight-back package developed in opposition, which, uh, and, and, and by the way, um, a very high quality document, well, well, uh, argued, um, it was confronting, it was challenging, it was really, really ambitious. Um, but nevertheless, it was, uh, and particularly for a document created in opposition, an outstanding piece of work. Um, and of course, at this on this occasion, I was in the department um, providing briefing for actually John Kerrin was the treasurer at the time that that was launched, as I recall. I think I've got that right. It must have been in 1992 that, yeah, of course, it was 1992 that it was released. Was it? Must have been. Or maybe mm. it was 91. No, Kerrin was treasurer. It must yeah. have been the second half of 91. It must it, have been released in 91. It was. And... Um, uh, and so preparing that briefing for Treasurer Karen um, in a role that put me, well, people chose to put me or, or decided that I was then on the other side of the of the argument, which I certainly wasn't, but I was nevertheless providing the briefing on the package as it was presented. And, you know, that, that fight back um, attempt failed and that was probably a more surprising well that was certainly a more surprising failure than the one that Keating had suffered in 1985 you know very surprising failure and you would have thought and everybody did think well that's it that's the end of it never going to happen again uh, and that's what Howard said in the 1996 election campaign right there will never ever mm. um, be a GST so 25 years I mean I think that's something and I don't think we should and several failed attempts. <laughs> so I don't think we should ignore that. Having said that, I'm not going to say to you that... Um, so the, the point there is that, well, reform's always been difficult. And takes a long time. And takes a long time. Yeah. 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 But having said that, I'm not going to say to you that I'm very confident that in 15 years' time we will have a resource of super profit stats in Australia, <laughs> right? <laughs> it, takes, it takes more than that. So um, there is something about the other... Uh, in the other two things um, that you mentioned. And, and, and one of them, in fact, maybe both of them, go back to the ability of uh, the proponents to um, construct a narrative that um, is sufficiently compelling to, to build, um, not just to build public support, because as you said, the polls suggested that the resources super profits tax had public support, right? But it is to 
<laughs> I have thought about this a lot. It's to give your if you're the if you're the treasurer or prime minister running the argument. It's to give your parliamentary colleagues confidence that you're going to win it. You're going to win the argument. Um, also to give them a narrative that they can use in their own electorates too. Um, and that's, that is more than being able to point to public opinion polls which show that overall the public is in favour. Um, I think the reform ambition of governments it, it it certainly relies on the the leadership and the the qualities of leadership that we've spoken about but the fuel for it on which it absolutely depends is the um, more or less unquestioning support <laughs> of the parliamentary colleagues of the leader you know and that's what wasn't there wasn't there in 1985 um, and and that was a labor government and it wasn't there again um, when the tax review was launched in in 2010 um, there was just there was no there was insufficient confidence in the parliamentary labor party that um, they were going to be able to get this done now, people will debate for a long, long time whether that's that was a fair assessment being made by those people or not, but I'm sure that's why the jockeying for um, or the moves against against Kevin Rudd as Prime Minister started. Mm. Is the lack of confidence and the inability to craft a narrative endogenous to the good times? So I guess yeah, I've, yeah, I've kind of got you know, going. you know those cyclical theories where yeah. like tough times create hard yeah, men yeah, and women, yeah. good times create soft men and women. Like, is there something like that going on? Um, does good policy leadership require like a wolf at the door to motivate it, or were we just just unlucky with the political leaders we had during those periods? I think it'd be a bit unfair to say we were, we were unlucky. Um, I guess w- with respect to those specific yeah, policies, because oh, with respect to those specific policies. <sighs> okay, so um, so I used to think about this a hell of a lot, um, particularly when I was um, speaking publicly uh, on economic challenges confronting the nation. When you think about. Um, the intergenerational report, as it's called, and the first of those was published in 2002. So these are reports, and Treasury publishes them, and these are reports that produce 40-year projections of government spending, right? Um, and they, they used to just assume, and certainly the 2002 report just assumed that tax revenue would remain constant as a proportion of gross domestic product, just a technical assumption. Let's not worry about the tax side of the budget. <laughs> Um, and let's focus on the spending side of the budget. And uh, I uh, briefed the Howard Cabinet on that report well in advance of it being published and, and drew out what I saw as being the 
central components of a policy reform narrative that could be built on those projections, right? And there was a lot of interest around the table, a lot of interest. Uh, and in the subsequent period, um, Peter Costello as treasurer gave a lot of speeches, a lot, that were based on that narrative. And I did too. We both did. And it was kind of a double act, right? And he would address some audiences and I would address other audiences, right? And that's exactly what we were trying to do, was to build a, a platform or more an environment, actually more an environment in which one could have a serious conversation about emerging reform needs and then motivate the reforms that would be required. Um, because you're not in a crisis period and, and the, the narrative is based on 40-year projections, um, you can test things. <laughs> and uh, because uh, as a politician, your political window is three years at most, right, you don't actually have to implement anything in that, in that time period. So you don't actually have to expose yourself to um, uh, to um, the verdict of the electorate. So with that, there's you know there's you can be a little more comfortable about the ideas that you you're expressing. The evidence is though that no matter how daunting those distant challenges are presented as being because of what you referred to earlier as hyperbolic discounting, and maybe for other reasons, the narrative has no impact. It just doesn't grab people. Mm. They just, um, oh, well, we don't have to worry about that. That's, we're, we're worried about tomorrow, thank you very much, and with good reason. Most people are, and with good reason. Um, let's not worry about that. Um, and I used to finish, almost every speech I gave on this, um, I would finish with the words like, we don't have to, like, we've got to do a lot of things. We don't have to do them immediately, but we will have to do them. Well, we still haven't done any of them. And we're 20 years in, right? That was 2002. We're 20 years in. Um, and by the way, the projections that we published in 2002, although they were 40-year projections, we had decadal projections. So we had projections for the first decade, second decade third and fourth, the, if you compare those projections for the first two decades against lived experience, against what's actually happened, they're pretty damn good, i.e. the disaster that we had outlined is occurring. It's a slow-moving disaster, right? And surely people have been aware that the disaster is emerging. I mean, surely they're aware of Australia's atrocious performance of in productivity growth for example, atrocious performance in growth in gross domestic product per capita, all of those measures that matter to utilitarians, right? <laughs> Surely they're aware of all, all that stuff uh, and they're just allowing it to happen. Um, and moreover, no politician, no political leader has pointed to those things and said, oh, my God, this stuff that Costello was talking about 20 years ago We've actually done nothing about it. And look where we are. It's about time we did something. That's kind of deeply troubling, 
right? So I think it is possible to develop the narrative, but I'm not at all confident that you can get traction. Traction sufficient to motivate action. And is this like a problem that's unique to this period? Is this something that- No, I don't think it is, no. It's not interesting. No, I don't think it is. Interesting. And I think that's that's exactly why, that's exactly the frustration that Keating was venting, expressing anyway, um, in his 1986 Banana Republic statement. It's exactly that. Yeah. that we're, we've got this slow-moving disaster. It's yeah. not going to hit us tomorrow, but if we don't do something pretty dramatic, it is going to hit us in some years hence. Um, and so he, and I don't think he thought, look, well, I have spoken to him about this. Um, he was just expressing frustration, but of course, what he was doing was constructing a burning platform. Yeah, that's what he was doing. Um, and he was every, ma- making the counterfactual. Vision. Yeah, yeah, making it real. Yeah, uh, and I really, you know, I've thought a lot about the um, how one might construct narratives to uh, motivate change, and um, when it comes to major policy change. Um, at least economic policy change and certainly tax policy change, nothing short of a burning platform will work. You've really got to convince people that we're all going to hell or somewhere worse. Oh, well, let's assume there's nowhere worse. Uh, We're all going to hell unless we do something and do it pretty damn quickly. Hmm. So, Ken, should I think of you as standing in contrast to thinkers like Mansa Olson, the, the public choice economist, Mm. who wrote that book, The Rise and Decline of Nations, or more parochially, like a, a Ross Garner who thinks that there are all these like almost like secular factors that now make reform more difficult. Should I think of you in contrast to those kind of theorists? No, I don't think so. I, I mean, I think those factors have made it more difficult. I'm, right. just, I'm just saying, I think what I'm saying and where, I, where you'd be able to find accommodation between my views and theirs is that I don't think it was ever easy mm. and I, I don't think we were ever very good at it, honestly. I don't. Mm. I think there were circumstances that were largely, I mean, the circumstances were bad, but it took somebody like a Keating to construct the burning platform to motivate action, right? Mm. That's, that's with respect to the big things, some of the big things that were done. With respect to things like... Um, Floating the currency, removing capital controls and so on, those things that were taken in those decisions that were taken in December 1983, there was a burning platform there as well and it had to do with um, concerns about um, pressure on the currency, um, which which officials and governments have been wrestling with for a very long time before those decisions were taken in 1983. But, of course, the other thing is that um, other countries from all around the world, most actually, I think, I, I'm, I could be wrong in this, but my my sense is that most, certainly leading IMF uh, members would have floated their currencies before Australia did. So it was kind of a, why are we not doing this? Um, it doesn't tell you very much about um, Australia's preparedness for economic reform, Mm. I don't think. 
Um, I don't think I'm doing that in injustice. It's really in motivating um, public appetite for the difficult things like bringing the budget deficit back under control that you've got to construct that burning platform. And that's what Keating did. And we, the only other times we've had it um, is when it couldn't be ignored, when we were actually in the middle, have been in the middle of a crisis, whether it's a global financial crisis or the pandemic or whatever. Mm. If there's a problem with democracy, that Im- that implies like a bigger problem for capitalism, right? Yeah, because absolutely. two sides of a coin. Yeah, yeah, like Milton Friedman's argument that the only social responsibility of a business is to maximize profit for shareholders was predicated in part on the idea that that governments could internalize externalities. Absolutely, I mean more than in part, more than in part. I mean it's very. Well, the, I, read, I guess the other part I'm yeah. contemplating is that that individuals can internalize externalities as well. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, well, let's talk about that. So, um, Friedman's perspective, as I read capitalism and freedom, um, is that, um, huh? Isn't it? I mean, it's funny. So, when I read capitalism and freedom, what I get from it is a perspective that says, without uh, functional democracy and um, um, governments playing their role uh, and the public, i.e. Uh, the citizens who elect them, um, ensuring that governments play the appropriate role with respect to, and Friedman points to, free and open competition, um, an absence of fraud or deception, right? In those things in particular, uh, he would say, and he does say in Capitalism and Freedom, that, well, uh, it's not going to work. Um, but, in, but in saying that, he sets up an adversarial system, right, where the rest of us, and that's the expression he uses, the rest of us, as citizens in a democracy, um, we necessarily find ourselves in an adversarial position with respect to business. And he says, but that's fine, right, because... Provided businesses seek to maximise profit and government does its bit to ensure that as consumers and workers and so on, we're not dudded by their profit-maximising activities, what do you know? That's fine. Um, Formally, um, in neoclassical economics, the expression is that the outcome is Pareto optimal. Now, there are, uh, in the sense that nobody can be made better off without somebody else being made worse off, right, and it satisfies all the utilitarians. But there are other issues, and he canvasses these other issues in capitalism and freedom where he refers to the possibility of neighbourhood effects, which today we call externalities. And, I mean, everybody's aware of the really big one, um, which is climate change, which is clearly a negative externality of um, the operation of markets and businesses seeking to maximise profits and being allowed to do so without taking account of the damage that they're doing to the climate and to the environment and now to people's lives as a consequence of those commercial activities. But there are many other negative externalities that are a consequence of profit maximisation. And he admits that, more than admits, he sets out the the way that one should think about the role of government in dealing with those externalities. And he, he refers to essentially a balance sheet approach or maybe a profit and loss approach or 
Anyway, what we these days have termed something like a cost-benefit analysis of um, government intervention because one should recognise that if governments seek to intervene to address a negative externality um, and they're successful, they do some good, but they could also be doing some harm as well associated with the regulatory imposition, blah, 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 you know, that. And he also talks about the other case for government, the other big case for government involvement, which is in the provision of public goods. But from memory, and it's a while since I've read it, but from memory, aside from defence, he's pretty reluctant to endorse a case for governments getting very much involved in the delivery of public goods. I remember being absolutely shocked when I read that he could see no case for governments funding national parks. I mean, the reason I find that one shocking is that I understand the argument that the beneficiaries, those who derive benefit from national parks are those who visit them. So rather than national parks being funded by um, the general body of taxpayers, they should be funded by those who get to enjoy the national parks, i.e. those who visit them. Um, but the problem is that many of those, and even if you are utilitarian on this, many of those that you would hope get to visit national parks are not even born yet, far less of a voting age, um, uh, and they're not capable of expressing the value that they attach to a national park by paying park entrance fees. And so um, there's a complete ignorance in in his writings of the important role that government has in preserving things for the enjoyment of future generations. Um, and, and that I think um, is a significant, is a significant weakness. But um, it's the other thing that's ironic is that it's not until, I think it's in the forward of the 40th edition, because he he kept revising that book. Mm. I think I read an interview with him at some stage where he said it's the most difficult thing he ever wrote, which I think is why he continued to revise it. But I think he says in the forward of the 40th edition that um, he, on reflection, wishes that he had paid more attention to um, the way that governments might um, discharge their their responsibilities. I think he was thinking more of the contest between authoritarianism and um, democracy. But I think, and I don't know if he had this in mind, but my perspective on it would be that he should have spent more time thinking about how capitalism operates when government is incapable, for whatever reason, of discharging its side of the, its responsibilities, right? So what happens when government is dysfunctional, um, for whatever reason is incapable of um, ensuring that business does operate in a way such that profit maximisation does actually lead to a utilitarian utopia. Mm. Mm. Two two questions. Mm. 
if government is dysfunctional for secular reasons, mm. does that imply that companies and other organizations are actually the the real vehicles for social change? So all else being equal today, should ambitious young people think less about the political arena and the public service and more about the startup world? So it's really, um, so this is a good question. Um, <laughs> all your questions have been good. <laughs> so um, I don't know about the startup world. Like I wouldn't, I wouldn't uh, focus on that particularly, but I, I found myself having, having to, I didn't have to, but I chose to talk about um, these issues in an address I gave recently um, to a, a, a bunch of uh, graduating students at the ANU and I made the point that um, this somewhat um, dystopian perspective that that I have that government has essentially become dysfunctional opens up enormous opportunity for people who understand how the system operates and who understand what it take what it might take to achieve better social outcomes and including environmental outcomes. And the point I made was that. Um, at a, like an, at an instrumental level, the point I made was that um, there is a role for smart people in um, achieving things that governments, for whatever reason, have demonstrated an incapacity to achieve. And um, what's what's at play here is that. Um, even if the vast majority of people don't understand the reasons for um, the bad things that they observe going on around them, they know that there's something wrong, right? And they are inclined to the view that business is at the heart of it. And and why not? After all, uh, it's businesses that, actually take the decisions that affect most people's lives, right? Businesses one form or another who decide what gets produced, at what price, who gets a job, where the job is located, how much they get paid, um, what inputs are used in the production of whatever it is that they're producing, whether it's a good or a service, where those things are sourced from, what environmental damage is tolerated in the production of those things, uh, what social harm is... Um, uh, is done by people consuming the products that they produce, all of that kind of stuff. It's actually businesses doing it, right? Um, and I think people understand that and I think they see businesses being, therefore, the source of the problem. So as a policy-trained uh, economist, I see, that, I see government failure there. I think most people see business failure. Well, in that... There is enormous opportunity, right? So there is more interest now in um, people understanding the consequences of business activity. Uh, and so there's, there's a lot of support now for enhanced disclosure regimes. So take, for instance, the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosure that is voluntary, and yet, although it's voluntary, I know... <clears throat> the new environment minister has signalled, or maybe it's uh, maybe it was Chris Bowen, has signalled that um, one day 
these disclosures are going to be mandated for large publicly listed companies, but nevertheless they're voluntary. But most large publicly listed companies are making these disclosures now. <clears throat> now they're only making scope one and possibly scope two disclosures, not full scope three disclosures of um, carbon emissions associated with their activities. Um, but they're nevertheless moving in that direction, right? Um, and why? The reason they're moving in that direction is because they understand that increasingly the expectation that investors have, so shareholders have, is that they will take some responsibility or some accountability, which is probably a better word, some accountability for what they're doing and seek to avoid those negative impacts. Um, workers don't want to work for such companies. So if, you want, if you're in the market for labour, as you are, as every business is, and that's an increasingly difficult market, you're going to find it increasingly difficult to attract people who want to work for you. You're going to find banks increasingly reluctant to lend to you because of the reputational risk but also the credit risk associated with those, um, with those lending decisions. And you're going to find customers saying, I don't want to buy your product. Bugger off. You know, I'll source um, product. I'll satisfy my, um, my wants and my needs from, um, from other businesses that I, I just like the look of, right? I don't like the look of you. So uh, th the way to think about that in Economics 101 terms is that it's actually those economic agents, so investors, uh, credit providers, lenders, uh, workers and consumers who are effectively imposing an externality tax on that business, on business generally. Uh, you can avoid this externality tax by changing your behaviour. You don't change your behaviour, you're going to have to pay higher wages to attract people. <laughs> you're going to ha you won't be able to charge such high prices to attract consumers. Um, you're going to pay higher interest rates and you're going to have to be capable of paying higher dividends to attract investor support. Uh, and that's probably going to dwindle and dry up anyway. So it, it's effectively disenchantment on the part of the public or members of the public generally in attributing the, um, the, the, the source of the problems to the activities of business, and understandably so, that is, I think, um, leading to... Uh, an implicit externality tax being imposed on businesses. And mm. that is going to change behaviour. And what I was saying to this group of graduates at the ANU is there's enormous opportunity there. You think about everything that's going to be required to put that system in place, the information requirements, the data requirements for, for a start, uh, people who are capable of sitting inside businesses and guiding them on how they should respond to this implicit externality tax in its various forms and what they need to do, massive change coming, I reckon, uh, and it'll go. it's going to go well beyond climate. It's going to go, so the next cab off the rank is the Task Force on Nature-Related Financial Disclosure. That too will be voluntary, uh, at least initially, and maybe for a very long time, but I nevertheless expect to see Australian businesses responding to that um, and responding um uh, quickly um and maybe even maybe even seeking to be um at the forefront globally in responses anyway i certainly hope that that's the case um and you've also got you've also got other governments in other parts of the world that are not as timid as ours that are um or 
yeah, not as timid as ours, I think that's right, um, that are um, taking decisions. Maybe they're protectionist, but of the sort, well, uh, we're, not going to, we're not going to allow our consumers to source product from countries like Australia that have such a poor record of um, uh, with respect to carbon emissions or have such a poor record with respect to species extinction and so on, right? Um, and that uh, is driving change behaviour uh, as well and, mm. and I think it's going to be an increasingly potent force. Were you working on anything around the social responsibility of companies before you left NAB? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, it's kind of um, we were having a lot of conversations internally um, about this topic and um, and in fact, uh, we had <laughs> turned out to be quite an expensive exercise um, on um, the whole question of um, of social purpose um, and uh, we developed through a long process of, um, and and involving a lot of people in the organisation, certainly all of the board and all of the senior management, but it went well down into the organisation of uh, developing a purpose statement for for NAB. Um, yeah, we had a lot of conversations about it, and that included um, the um, stance that NAB should take uh, with respect to its regulatory obligations. And it's kind of ironic that, um, you know, we, we were probably more, I would say that NAB was more advanced on, on these discussions than any of the other banks. In fact, I'm sure that's true um, and had made substantial progress. But, of course, <laughs> NAB had um, the wealth business, the MLC business, um, which it had acquired in 2000 and... It had recently restructured um, or changed the business model of, and in advance of everybody else, in moving from a trailing commission model to a fee-for-service model. And it was still in the process of being uh, bedded down. And and I would have to say uh, with huge problems, I mean massive problems, and um, and we were aware of those problems, um, and had and were engaging with the regulators uh, on those problems. But that was just at the time that um, you know the legitimate angst in the public um, uh, was uh, was escalating, and and we found ourselves in a in a royal commission. Interestingly. Um, that Royal Commission had the opportunity, because it was certainly within its terms of reference, to consider these issues. Um, in round seven, I think it was, I I was called as a, I mean, it's funny how you get these invitations, because the invitation is to appear before the Royal Commission as an expert witness. And mine was as an expert witness to talk about the big topics of corporate accountability, governance, and culture, um, the sort of exactly what we've just been talking about in this interview. Um, so they're big policy questions and I didn't get any questioning on these topics at all. Um, uh, in, uh, and, and that's because I think 
it's just the structure, the way the the Royal Commission had been established and the way it was the way it was doing its work. And I'm not being critical in saying this, but it, it was operating more as a um, uh, uh, more as a uh, criminal court, mm, the way a criminal court operates. Um, and it was good theatre, and and I'm not I'm not in any way wanting to diminish the seriousness of, of the issues that were under uh, consideration because they were certainly serious, uh, no question about that. But what it failed to do is it failed to grapple with any of the policy issues, and that's. Uh, that's a problem. And in fact, the, the big policy issues, um, the core policy issues that were at issue uh, in respect of the the financial advice part of uh, NAB, the MLC part, which is what I got all the questioning about, they're still unresolved. Um, and in fact, the newspapers even this week have been full of uh, commentary about whether the Labor government will act on a subsequent review uh, of those parts of the law that um, the Hain Royal Commission had failed to address. It's still ongoing. Yeah. Uh, who knows when these issues will ever be resolved, right? But um, yeah, it's a bit of a it's a bit of a shame. But yeah, we were certainly working on these issues in NAB in the time that I was there, and I don't know what's happened to that. Do that work since? Hmm. When you left Treasury in 2011, some coalition MPs had been openly attacking you since about 2008. Yeah. Um, and you'll remember in the 2010 election as, as part of the negotiations with the crossbench, Oakshot and Windsor extracted the, the red book and the blue book and then um, the Treasury advice about Abbott's policy program being quite like scathing mm. and that leaked and Abbott was filthy um, and was no doubt prepared to be vindictive uh, as he eventually was when he took government. Um, yeah, that was years later though. Years later, yeah. Mm. Um, I guess I'm curious like what, what part of your motivation in leaving in 2011 was to protect the broader institution of the Treasury from political attacks? Well, it was certainly, it, did, it was playing on, it was certainly playing on my, my mind. It, uh, uh, but it's, I thought a lot about this. Uh, well, I thought a lot about it in the moment. I look in the 2010 election. This is probably not known. I'm sure nobody has written this, but I, I don't think there's any reason why I shouldn't disclose it. Um, I don't think I was in any confidential discussion, but in that period, um, following the uh, election, when the um, discussions were going on with the crossbenchers, uh, and both both potential governments were involved in those discussions. I, um, I was sitting in my office, I got an invitation to go across to Parliament House and meet with the Liberal leader and the Deputy Liberal leader, um, which I willingly agreed to do, of course, even though they'd been bagging me for years, or at least the party had. Um, 
And so I, I met with uh, Tony Abbott and Julie Bishop. The only other person in the room was Peter Credlin. And the purpose of the meeting was simply for them to ask me whether in the event that they were able to get the support of the crossbenchers and form government, I would give them an undertaking to stay on as Treasury Secretary. And I said I'd be very pleased to do so, and I would have stayed on. Um, matter of fact, Tony Abbott said he would be honoured if I did so. <laughs> um, anyway, I would have stayed on and uh, I would have expected to have um, had another term as Treasury Secretary had I done so. My term was up in April 2011. Uh, I think had I stayed on, I probably would have had uh, another term. But the thing is that politics is is fickle, right? Um, and it is not just about, I mean, it's largely about personalities, of course, because that's the way the game is played. Um, but politicians on both sides can be absolutely brutal with people and with institutions when they choose, when the, when the circumstances suit them. And I, um, I had absolutely no confidence that um, were I to stay on, that was going to improve the quality of the relationship between the Treasury and the coalition government. Um, and so um, I didn't think it was in the Treasury's interest that I stay on. But mind you, I certainly didn't think it was in my interest that I stay on either. I'd had a gutful. Um, and, uh, yeah, and so, and anyway, I've been doing the job for 10 years um, and I thought it was the right time to to hand over and certainly to hand over to Martin, it was the right time. Mm. Um, so I've never, a lot of people have asked me whether I, I ever, because I was only 53 when I left and I, a lot of people have asked me whether I've ever had any regrets about leaving when I did and maybe occasionally, but not very often, <laughs> not very often, um, which isn't to say that I don't miss it. I miss it enormously, like every day I miss it. What I miss, I, I miss, I miss the work, I miss the colleagues. Um, I still think about the issues. Like every day I think about the issues, but not in the way that I was once able to think about the issues, you know. Um, I mean, what an extraordinary privilege it is for a, um, a person interested in policy that if they wake up in the middle of the night uh, with an idea or a thought or even a burning question, within a few hours they can have a team of very, very smart people working that issue to death. Um, and then before the day is out, be engaging in a robust debate with those same people about the various issues, right? I mean, that's extraordinary. Who gets that opportunity? Um, and I lived that for years and years and years, right? And it was just wonderful. Mm. I guess it's just a... A shame for the country that you um, you were cognizant of the scapegoating dynamic in leaving Treasury, but not in 
walking into the Banking Royal Commission. Yeah, well. No, that's right. Possibly, I, I mean, I'm, I, possibly I, I'm drawing a false equivalence. No, you're not. No, I don't think you are. I don't think it is a false equivalence. Uh, well, I don't regard... I mean, it, it's false in the sense that I don't think it's... Uh, I don't think it's such a loss for the country that I left NAB when I left NAB because, I mean, honestly, um, whilst I felt that I was having an impact on NAB, and I know I was, uh, and by the way, I think it's it has, from everything I read, um, the institution has continued to improve in the years since, since I left, which is not all that long ago. Um, in those roles, no matter how much you do, you, you can't achieve the sort of change that you can achieve and have the sort of impact that you can have when you're, you know, you're working in the Treasury. I mean, you just can't. And, um, and, and so those roles, those very senior policy advising roles, they are, um, they're, just in a diff- they're just in a completely different space from what uh, people have been able to achieve in uh, in the corporate world or, you know, in all of those, ex- many of them extraordinarily worthwhile NGOs that we have, around, which are vital parts of the civil society that, you know, that underpins Australia. And they're, and they're certainly, you know, they're more than much in a very different space from what academics, even the world's best academics, are able to achieve with their work. Of course, they're highly influential on, or should be, on those senior policy people, but they don't have the same proximity to the action. They don't have the ear of the uh, policy decision makers and and cannot in quite the same way. And, of course, they wouldn't even seek to, right? (laughs) Would impact their independence. Um, Yeah, so there is something very special about it, and I don't think you can really... So there is no equivalence in that sense. Nevertheless... um, Nevertheless, there is something in the um, there is something in the um, uh, what is it? Um, I don't even know what it is, but it, it's kind of um, there's still there's nevertheless a sense. I mean, there's obviously a bit of a sense of personal loss, although not. No, certainly wouldn't be as certainly nothing as profound as you know losing one of those senior policy roles. I mean, the people who, like Martin, years later, who who was unceremoniously um, sacked by Tony Abbott, only to be um, uh, <laughs> brought back by Malcolm Turnbull. I mean, God, you, that, you just can't get your head around this stuff. Mm. Um, uh, even though I understand how all that happened, but um, I think I do. I mean that's that's really bloody devastating, right? Losing that sort of role mm. for absolutely no reason. Mm. At least when I walked away from NAB, there was a reason for doing it. It was in very much in the interest of the NAB reputation that I considered that um, somebody in my job, i.e., the chairman of the company, stand up and say, "Well, you know what?" And it took me a while to get to this point, and I know that's that's my own failing but um but you know what um as chairman of this outfit i just have to take accountability for this and by the way there is a 
There used to be a parallel in public service. It was called ministerial accountability. And it was much the same thing, which is that motivated by much the same idea that, of course, if you are the minister uh, with responsibility for an agency and the agency um, misbehaves in some way, right, in some big way, um, even if you couldn't possibly personally have had anything to do with that, you are nevertheless accountable and you must resign. And that's the doctrine of ministerial responsibility, right, which we don't have any longer in Australia. We had it up until some way through the Howard government. Um, and so you, I don't know, you may recall that in the, I think the first 12 months of the Howard government, I think there were six ministers who lost their jobs. Not all of them on the doctrine of ministerial responsibility, but some yes. Um, and it's a peculiar feature of the Westminster system, and it's a really oddball thing, but the reason for it is that um, whether it's fair or not, somebody has to um, be seen publicly to take accountability for failings. And where is the buck going to stop if not on the desk of the minister or on the desk of the chairman of the company, you know? Mm. So I think it's actually, it should be seen as a strength of our system, not a weakness um, of our system. To finish the conversation, mm. I thought it would be fun. Fun. <laughs> to, um, fun to ask you a few questions about specific policies. Oh, yeah. And these will be high variance questions. Uh-huh. So either... And I'm not going to say, well, that's hypothetical. (laughs) Yeah, you can't say that. Um, But either the questions will be kind of daft or they could actually provoke really interesting responses. Okay. So let's, we'll see how we go. Um, What would it take for Australia to build a major new city and where would you put it? (laughs) uh, Yeah. Okay. So that is a question I've thought about. Yeah. Oh, wow. Great. I know. Well, I... I um, Did Treasury ever look into this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I... Uh, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> oh, interesting. Oh, yeah. So oh, when was this? Oh, goodness me. Um, it was... Uh, it must have... Been, well, it was... Yeah, I was Treasury Secretary, uh, certainly at the time. And um, I remember having a conversation. Uh, pull, pull your mic up. I remember you can, having you can lean back, just pull it. I remember having a I remember having a conversation with um uh Kevin Rudd um only a few days after the November two thousand and seven election, right? In fact it was the first conversation I, I had with him after he became Prime Minister. And we were just talking about a whole range of issues. And he's he said, I think he said something like, Oh, and by the way, what do you think the maximum sustainable population for Australia is? Right. Mm. And I said uh, probably 15 million thereabouts. And he thought I said 50. And he leaned forward and he said, 50 million. Ah, right, good. I said, no, 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 I said 15. Said, How can you say that? Population's already much more than 15. And I said, 
I don't think you can argue that human activity on this continent is sustainable. Not in any way I think about it. And so I think we'd have to cut our population quite a bit if that's all we were going to do in order to achieve a sustainable population. And he was obviously shocked and obviously disappointed. He may even have been appalled. I don't know. And then I said to him, but although that's my view, um, it's also my view that it would be possible to construct a set of policies that would sustain a population of 50 million, five zero. That's possible. But it would mean that we'd have to do a lot of things very differently. And in that conversation, I said, for example, we might have to build a whole brand new city for 10 million people, one that doesn't presently exist. So then we subsequently in the department, and it wasn't just in the department, there were other people involved in this as well, started um, exploring where you might build not a a whole brand new city of 10 million, but um, say um, a number of cities of 1 million, where you'd put them throughout Australia, right? And there, and so I'm not trying to avoid the question, but here's the thing. The reason we don't have a uh, very fast train in Australia from Melbourne to Brisbane is obvious, right? And everybody knows it. It's because we don't have the population that would support it. But that doesn't mean we don't have sufficient population in total. It's the distribution of the population that Mm. makes it ridiculous, right? But if the population were distributed differently, um, like along a corridor that a train line might run through with maybe five stops, something like that, maybe a few more, um, uh, because not every train has to be an an express, um, then it is possible to think about those things. Right, And so um, in specific answer to your question, I think there's a lot of spots along a potential rail corridor where you could build such cities. Um, Of course, there are environmental issues associated with every one of those spots. So those are issues that factors that have to be taken into account. But we don't avoid those issues by allowing the continuing suburban sprawl in Melbourne and Sydney and oh Perth, Bevan's sake, and Brisbane too, um, all those cities that are, are going to become, probably going to become megacities. Uh, maybe Brisbane won't ever be called a megacity, but it's going to be a big one and Perth's going to be a big one. And um, Sydney and Melbourne will be called megacities globally, right, uh, if we don't do something smarter. So transport infrastructure, I think, is quite a big part of it. Um, and, uh, of course, there are, other, there are other things that would have to be attended to, but you know, I would start looking at that corridor. That's so interesting. Have you heard of the Bradfield scheme? Oh, yeah. So... As you know, it was this to turn the rivers back. Yeah, this this really ambitious project back in the nineteen 
1938, I think it was, was it? first mm. suggested, basically to create an inland sea in Australia by filling up Lake Eyre yeah, and yeah, then yeah. diverting rivers to it. And the idea was that this would basically drought-proof much of Queensland and South Australia. Except that it would be salt water, right? <laughs> Presumably, yeah. Well, it would. Yeah. Yeah, I don't, I'm, I'm not actually familiar with um, the details of how they were going to get around that particular problem. Well, I don't think they were. I don't think, they were. They were, I don't think they'd thought about it. <laughs> right, right. Well, that, that probably explains why it doesn't doesn't exist. But No, no, I don't think that's why it doesn't exist. <laughs> might be other reasons as well. Yeah, I think there might be other reasons. Yeah, okay, yeah. fair enough. But regardless of the merits of that particular scheme, um, I guess just thinking on that level of kind of like crazy, ambitious nation-building projects, what um what incredibly ambitious project are we not building currently that we should be? Yeah, Out, outside of kind of new cities. Yeah, outside of new cities. See, I would start. I actually would start with new cities. That's why I was oh, cool. so well prepared for that. Um, I'm glad I asked for that question. Um, oh, yeah, I would start with new cities, but uh, but others. Oh, um, look, the renewable energy space offers. Huge challenge and huge yep. opportunity, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, we're kind of <laughs> um, look. This is a gross generalisation, so it's not. It's nowhere near uh, close to being accurate. But we are applying much uh, to date. Anyway, to date, we've applied much the same thinking and policy analysis to the accommodation of renewable energy projects as we have anything else. Even though we know we've got a pretty good sense of the size of the transformation that's going to be required. And, of course, whenever anybody talks about it, they say, oh, my God, we've got to do, you know, what we've already done, we've got to do 10 times over and we've got to do it within 10 years or something, you know, mm. things to that effect. Um, uh, and I know some people are, thought, are thinking about an entirely new approach to this, like just turn the way we think about these issues on their heads and let's oh, just yeah. say, okay, let's aim to achieve that outcome, right? What are we going to have to do in order to achieve that outcome? It does bring you back to locational issues like where you're going to locate the cities. Um, it, it, it forces you to think about um, transmission infrastructure, of course, in a way that um, we haven't, to date, thought about it. It forces you to think about things like um, local um, electricity um, networks um, using battery storage or, you know, a whole variety of different uh, possible uh, uh, pumped hydro storage or, or whatever. Um, every, one, every one of those projects would be multi-billion dollar projects. They're huge. And as a country, aside from Snowy Hydro, and and not even not even Snowy Hydro two point zero, it's not of the scale that's going to be required of some of these other projects. Right? It's not even big enough. It's not. I mean, some of these projects that we are going to have to invest in will be much bigger than Snowy two point zero. Right? What sort of policy thinking do you have to bring to um, projects of that order of magnitude? Um, And it's kind of pressing, right, because it's not as if we can avoid these uh, these challenges. Uh, So that's another one. Um, Here's another one. When I was working on the... um, 
for the Gillard government uh, leading the development of the uh, white paper in Australia in the Asian century. Um, this idea popped into my head. I was in Darwin and I thought, why doesn't Darwin look like Singapore? So that's a good one to think about. What would it take? I like that. Yeah, what would it take? Um, what what are the what could you do? And I I know the hmm, what's happened since to the port of Darwin makes some of these questions problematic. But the, but if there's enough money and enough will, you could build a second port of Darwin. Mm -hmm. um, would it be possible to do a deal with the? Singapore Port Authority or whatever it's called on um, uh, with respect to entrepot uh, activity. You think of all those ships that sit for weeks and weeks and weeks off Singapore merely to drop their cargo for that cargo to be sorted and then picked up by another ship. It's mm -hmm. going to take it somewhere else. It's not like it's heading, it was never heading for Singapore other than to allow for transference from one vessel to another vessel. Darwin's a few hours south of Singapore, of course, uh, and as a ship would sail, I'm not sure how much additional time it would take, but, I mean, if you're going to be sitting for a couple of weeks off Singapore, why not divert to Darwin? It'll, it'll cut your time massively and get the activity undertaken there. Hmm? Um, why not see the port of Darwin as, a, um, as an export port for some of the natural resources that are going out through the port of Gladstone. Most of them, a lot of them are located in Western Queensland. What would it take? You're, you're, you're getting the vibe here. I can see by the expression on your face. What would it take <laughs> to have that um, uh, cargo sent west and then north out through the port of Darwin? Um, and then, what you know, what are the... Um, other opportunities that would be available in essentially a essentially a tropical city in the north of Australia, um, very close to all of Southeast Asia. I mean, I think uh, I forget. I did see it <laughs> when I was uh, consulting on this project. Um, I visited the then Chief Minister of the Northern Territory uh, and. And, and stood in his office and he's got this, I'll bet it's still there. I'll bet every chief minister of Northern Territory hangs onto this. It's a wall map. And, of course, Darwin is, is at the centre of it, right? So that's how the world is drawn. That's how the world <laughs> map's drawn. It's wonderful. And then there are these concentric circles um, identified by flight time, or maybe it's kilometres. Anyway, it doesn't really matter. There's an easy translation, right? And, and it just shows how many Asian cities are closer to Darwin mm. than is Melbourne mm. or Perth mm. right, or Sydney. And it allows you to think about Darwin playing a completely different role as a significant Southeast Asian city with obvious connections to several very big cities in Australia. Right. Mm. Mm. Yep. There's another idea for you. This is great. My my high variance questions are going well so far. <laughs> <laughs>
Okay, here's another one. So we have a decentralized privatized super system. Yep. Two trillion of disengaged money. Mm-hmm. And that's a honeypot for fraud and misbehavior. Mm-hmm. ASIC has to be the arbiter of that fraud. Has ASIC been set up for failure? Does it have enough resources to oversee a honeypot that large? Uh, okay. So, no, it doesn't. I mean, clearly it doesn't. Um, it has to rely on reporting and information systems, data collection systems that are, um, well, they're getting better. Um but I mean, it's. Um, uh, I don't want to sound alarmist, and and I and I'm not really alarmist about it because actually things have gone pretty damn well. Mm. Uh, you'd have to say things have gone pretty damn well uh, to date, but um, it's going to become increasingly challenging, obviously, for ASIC to stay on top of that. Um, and and in part that's that's because it, it, I mean it's not just fraud, um, but it, but there's also the risk of uh, internet based um, activity that um, you know so called cybercrime, mm. um, for which I don't think any regulatory agency in the world would regard themselves as exceptionally well placed to deal with. It's just an increasingly difficult uh, set of issues for we humans having invented the capability to now to now deal with. I mean, I sometimes wonder, and don't you, I mean, I had to go into a bank branch yesterday to once again supply documents to prove that I am who I say I am, right? So that's under KYC provisions, know your customer provisions. Very sensible. Understand it. Understand it. Completely. Um, but I'm old enough to remember a time when you'd never have to do that. And, of course, you didn't have to do it because the risks to which you're exposed or were exposed back then are several orders of magnitude less than what they are now. Um the risk of uh, identity fraud uh, or identity theft and then fraud that can be perpetrated once the identity theft has occurred. I mean, all the spam emails and so on that you get. I mean, and I was in this extraordinary uh, conversation with a very helpful person in the bank and I said, look, I've received this uh, email from you well, it looks like it comes from you, but I can't be sure. And the reason I'm worried about it <laughs> is because I've heard your CEO say, be wary of spam emails. We'll never send you an email that asks you to click on a link to anything. I said, have a look at this email. It's got 12 links in it. Turned out it was a genuine email from that bank. Like, holy hell. Hmm. Now, uh, is that just a case of the left hand not knowing what the right hand's doing? I don't know. But it's hugely complex, and the exposures uh, that we all have 
are um, of a diabolical order of magnitude, right? And so, yeah, the simple answer to your question is that no, I don't think I don't think ASIC could possibly have the resources that would be required to prevent fraud in all cases, and that's probably not its objective. I mean, it's probably looking to a more realistic objective, which is to provide a level of deterrence that minimises to some level of comfort the amount of fraud that's going to be undertaken. And that's not a comfortable place, but it's a realistic it's a realistic place. Mm. Right? And by the way, that issue raises its head because of the interconnection, because of the way in which our financial system is wired, um, including the superannuation system. Uh, that issue is there no matter whether the superannuation funds are privately owned or, as they are or, or, you know, if we had one mega superannuation fund in public ownership, it's still, you'd still have the issue. I mean, if the Commonwealth Bank was still in public ownership, it would still have the same issues yeah, that all the other true. banks have gone. Sure. Yeah. So on my most recent podcast episode, I interviewed Palmer Lucky, who's a US tech entrepreneur. He's founded mm. a couple of unicorn companies. Mm. The second is Endural, which sells weapons tech to the US government, the Australian government, other Western governments. Oh, wow. Um, and he was, um, and he's, I think he's designed a lot of the tech himself. Mm. Um, but he was telling me about how the defense industry in the US is, is, grossly inefficient um contracts are awarded on like a cost plus basis mm. and the incentives are structured such that like sometimes there's almost a competition to see who can put in the most expensive bid <laughs> not <laughs> not the cheapest bid um is this problem similar in australia as well um and i guess like as a corollary of that could we could we view the nuclear subs decision through that lens? Uh, I don't think oh, that's not the lens that I would use in looking at the nuclear subs issue. the The issue that has bedeviled de defence procurement in Australia is, um, yeah, it's in part to do with uh, let's call them inefficiencies uh, or or, or cost padding or cost overruns mm. on the part of uh, vendors or contractors. That's that that's part of it. But there's there's a part of me because I'm a you know because I'm an economist. I'm like I kind of um, accept that it's a fact of life that people will seek to get away with what they can get away with. Right? Sorry that they will get away with whatever they can get away with. And I know that's harsh. And I know, actually, I hope it's the case that most of the people I know are not actually like that. But look, it's not a bad working assumption if you're a policy economist, right? And so I think more about then what you can do in respect of institutional arrangements and policy guidelines and whatever to protect yourself or to protect the system from that, right? So, um, all right, you know, we can lament that people are greedy and we can lament 
that greed encourages people to behave dishonestly. But isn't there something that we can do to protect government, protect taxpayers, protect citizens against that? Now, Mm -hmm. the big issue in defence, procurement, for as long as I had any visibility on it, was our determination, infatuation actually, with bespoke assets, the development of bespoke assets. It cannot possibly be the case that a piece of military hardware used anywhere else in the world is suitable for Australian conditions, even if we have no intention of ever using it in Australia but could only ever deploy it to one of those, to a foreign <laughs> battlefield. What were the origins of that infatuation? Isn't that a great question? And I don't know the answer to that question, even though I saw it play out time and time and time again. It is possible that um, those running that line, so that's all about it would be a mistake, Prime Minister, to build an off-the-shelf product. We have to build it here. Now, um, because there is no off-the-shelf product that suits us, was that a bullshit argument that was really motivated by a desire to protect local industry jobs? Yeah, probably. I'm not sure, but quite probably. And when you look at the connections between the military and domestic suppliers, that's plausible, right? And you look at, as in the US, that military people on leaving military positions tend to pop up in jobs in supply firms. Yeah, well, you know, it's plausible. It's plausible that um, that what's at play there is the protection of domestic industry jobs. But I remember having this conversation with somebody who used to run a defence procurement. Um, and his take on it was that, yes, well, that may be true, but then on the other hand, doesn't it make sense for Australia to sustain a capability in the construction of military assets? Because you never know, right? And the answer to that question has to be, well, yes, okay, right? Of course it does, right? So the policy challenge here is actually quite tricky. In many cases, the the policy conclusion would be buy off, off the shelf. But then on the other hand, um, there is a policy argument for sustaining a local build capability, not of everything. But, you know, who knows of what? (laughs) We just don't know, right? So that's how I think the policy issue should be be dealt with. And there shouldn't be, um, and it should be dealt with in an open open way, right? We are, we are, we really are trying to sustain this domestic industry capability. Yes, we are. And we're not going, we're not making any secret of that. We're not trying to hide that. Um, But that's why we're doing it. We're not doing it because... Australia is unique uh, and needs heavily modified things 
knowing that there's a very high probability that the modifications are going to lead to extraordinary cost overruns uh, and time overruns, and in some cases, and there are some cases I'm aware of, where it's rendered the asset completely inoperable and it's had to be scrapped. And I'm talking about projects worth more than a billion dollars, but I'm not going to name them. The economist Vernon Smith yep. had on my podcast a couple of years ago. Yep. Uh, as a factoid, he actually shared the Nobel Prize with Danny Kahneman. Yep. They got yep. it the same year. Yep. Yep. Um, so he wrote a book on the US housing bubble um, a few years after the Great Recession. And he argued that the Bipartisan Taxpayer Relief Act of 1997, Clinton's Act, which exempted home resales from capital gains taxes is like the prime suspect for the trigger yeah. that yeah. caused the US housing bubble because suddenly you have this kind of exogenous mm. shift where people start to view homes as um, a speculative asset. You mean they become more Australian? <laughs> is that well, what this question I, I think I think you can see where I'm going. I guess like let me let me phrase it this way to to the extent that um well at least in the 2000s, Australian house prices mm. were overvalued or mm-hmm. certain mm. housing markets mm. in Australia were frothy. Mm. Could we tell a similar story? Could we say that the Howard government's decision to halve the rate of the capital gains tax in 1999 was mm. the trigger for some, uh, call it whatever you want, bubble overvaluation, et cetera? Uh, I think we'd have to say it had a significant impact. Yeah. The, would that be the prime suspect? Uh, prime suspect. Oh, Don't know. Like, I, 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 there's a few things at play here, right? So, um, in my view, definitely one of them, right? Halving and cap. So prior to that, we had um, capital gains tax indexation. So the the cost base of the acquired asset was indexed in line with CPI, and you paid capital gains tax on the difference between. Um, the sale price in the index cost base, right? So you only pay you pay capital gains tax on the um, but full at full marginal rates on the uh, the real gain the bit the bit over inflation. Now, um, in high inflationary times, that is where the CPI is rocketing and house prices are just kind of chugging along. Uh, that means you get a lot of protection from having to pay capital gains tax. But, of course, if monetary policy uh, is effective and the Reserve Bank is, is successful in keeping inflation within the range of 2 to 3% on average over the side, well, even let's, let's leave it there, if keeping it within that range of 2 to 3%, then there are going to be many times, at least Australian history suggests, there are going to be many times in which um, it would be rational even to expect that house price growth is going to result in uh, very substantial real gains. And, of course, the Howard government change did mean that those real gains would be taxed at a much lower rate, right? Basically at half the rate, right? Most of the gain would be taxed at half the rate it would have been taxed at uh, previously. That's with respect to rental property. And, of course, owner-occupier property has always been exempt, right, back from... 19 September 1985 has always been exempt. Um, and so um, you've got, you you had particularly through those, um, I know through the years 2000, 
2001, 2002, 2003. I mean, we were dealing with accelerating house prices through those years. Um, yeah, you would have to say that the capital gains tax decision um, played a significant um, a significant role in what was happening in the housing market because what we saw was a lot of people um, jumping into investor housing. So it was, I mean, there were there was. There was a there was more debt being taken on by households for owner occupier housing as well, but the there was strong investor interest, and we've seen that strong investor interest in every house price run up in the subsequent period. Every one of them, whenever the house prices take off, investors pile in, um, and those those investors have got um, uh, a blend of um, debt finance and increasingly increasingly um, pretty close to 100% equity <laughs> acquisition because they're baby boomers who have retired and are wondering where they're going to put all of that cash that they didn't manage to get into a tax-preferred superannuation vehicle, right? Mm. Where are they going to put it? Mm. Oh, put it in investor housing. You won't have the interest deduction um, that you would have had had your debt financed it. But you know what? You're going to make a capital gain and hmm, you're going to walk away laughing because... Only half the capital gain will be included in your in your taxable income. Yeah, I think it's a, a significant part of the story, and and also, and it was it was in the way that you phrased the question. I mean, this this idea that Australian that, that what's motivating it is speculation uh, is, I think, true. It's true. I think the the um, what happens when these house prices accelerate is that the the people who jump into the market. Are jumping in for speculative reasons. Um, it's not too much of an oversimplification to say that everyone who's negatively gearing is, by definition, speculating. No, no, probably not. Um, probably not, because after all, it's an investor asset if it's negatively geared, right? So we're not talking about owner occupiers. Mm. But um, but you're you're also you're losing money on the carry, so presumably you think you'll make it back in price appreciation. You got it, right? I mean, otherwise yeah. it's nuts. Yeah. And I don't I don't believe that people who are doing this are mad, mm. right? Um, quite the converse. Mm. And I remember having discussions about this around the Reserve Bank board table from time to time and just saying, well, what, if anything, can the Reserve Bank do about this? After all, it's not its mandate to control house price inflation. Uh, is its mandate is to look at uh, consumer price inflation and keep consumer price inflation between that target band of two to three percent. Okay, on average over the cycle, um, but with respect to speculative assets, including property, uh, it has no no particular mandate other than um, to wring its hands and be worried that these that that if bubbles burst they could cause some instability in the financial system, which is a concern, and, and they, they could lead to broader uh, macroeconomic impact, uh, so affect the economy more generally, which would be a concern of the, of the Reserve Bank. But the Reserve Bank does not, to date anyway, um, have instruments at its disposal that would allow to um, address asset price inflation as opposed to consumer price inflation. Now, we have re in recent years under the present governor um, seen some use of so-called macroprudential instruments. These are instruments that APRA holds, um, not the Reserve Bank, 
Um, it, if it is the case that the Reserve Bank, and we don't know because we've never been told, but if it is the case that the Reserve Bank has been leaning on or instructing or in some way influencing APRA to make use of those macroprudential instruments, then that's a curious thing, right? Because that's, um, and I presume that is what's being happen happening, and I'm not being critical of it either, but it doesn't sit well with the idea that the board of the Reserve Bank determines monetary policy in Australia mm. and, and, and exercises monetary policy independently. Yeah. I mean, I guess I kind of empathise with the difficulty of the Reserve Bank situation in the sense that if on the one hand you say to them that it's not their mandate to lean against the wind, yeah, then if they find themselves in a situation where they're very concerned about a build-up of household debt, yeah, presumably there's got to be some other way of addressing that. Oh, no, no, no. D that, don't get me wrong. I'm not being critical of them. Yeah, I'm not I'm being not, critical not, of them. I'm not saying you are. Uh, no, no, no. Yeah. I, I think the position is, uh, well, it's not, I guess it's not diabolical, but it's a very difficult position mm. that they're in. Um, and and I can understand why they would be, uh, from time to time, very concerned about uh, asset price inflation, particularly speculative-driven asset price inflation. And, of course, it makes perfectly good sense that they'd be concerned about that. Um, but um, if their only instrument is the overnight cash rate, the target cash rate of interest, then they are simply not capable of dealing with that issue, right? I mean, if house prices have been running, have been increasing at 15% per annum for, let's say, three years, and there are several periods in Australia's recent history where you can see that, it's highly likely that people who are purchasing property as a speculative asset have got in mind that for some time house prices are going to continue to increase in double digits, right? So... At what rate, at what, to what level you're going to have to lift? Suppose they, they do have a mortgage. To what rate are you going to have to lift the overnight cash rate of interest to convince them that that's a dumb thing to do? And the answer, I think, <clears throat> on every occasion I've looked at it, is that you'd have to lift the cash rate of interest to a level that would generate a recession because mm. it would just kill the rest of the economy. Mm. So that's the problem. You need additional instruments. And and makes sense. You got now more than one target. You've got a target for consumer price inflation. You've got a target now for speculative assets, mm. uh, speculative asset price inflation. You're probably going to need more than one instrument. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Tinbergen rule. Tinbergen. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. One goal, one instrument. Mm not to not to spend too much time on this but but um i mean i think it's now quite clear that the reserve bank did consciously lean against the wind in the early 2000s was that the right decision in those circumstances yes. whatever you think of like no the, no no i do no 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 i well i was i was on the board at the yeah, time yeah, how could i yeah. say otherwise yeah, yeah. <laughs> um but no I, I do think it was the right thing to do they actually did more than that right um there was there was an exercise of what's uh, colloquially referred to as jawboning Mm. You know, so Governor McFarlane was out there publicly um, talking about the risks, right? That one should not, I forget the precise words, it doesn't really matter, but it was to the effect that 
you should not. Nobody should assume that house prices are going to increase at these rates forever. Mm. Um, and those who are operating with that premise in mind are taking on an increasing risk, right? Um, and during that period, of course, I know uh, even even <laughs> people you'd talk to socially would say to you, but house prices never fall. Um, that's how poorly informed markets can be, right? Mm. So house prices never fall. It's a one-way bet. Mm. Right? Hmm. Um, I mean, in, in, in more recent times, I think there's a broader appreciation of the fact that there is a significant risk that house prices could fall and could fall by quite a lot, right? And you may find yourself in negative equity territory having to sell a house uh, and recover less than what you owe the bank. Um, and I think that's, you know, people find that really confronting. I mean, that's not part of the Australian mindset. <laughs> um, um, but then neither is it part of the Australian mindset that you should expect to lose money when you, uh, when, when you um, find yourself in front of a poker machine. But anyway. <laughs> mm. <laughs> okay. Last question. I think I think for me this is one of the more interesting questions. Mm-hmm. Um, but let's see what you think. Why hasn't Australia taken a populist turn to the same extent as the US or UK? Mm. I think the jury's still out. Do you have any explanations as to why it hasn't happened so far? I think there's I think there have been periods at which we have been at considerable risk um, of doing so. Um, yeah. Um, so, oh, gee, ha- how do I answer this question without getting really, really personal about particular? You know, <laughs> uh, look, the the risk is obviously on the right. Uh, let's call it the right side of politics. Pretty much, I think, because um, the issues that left-wing populists have been able to exploit in other countries are not as obvious here. Mm. So we do have income inequality, of course we do, and we do have wealth inequality, of course we do, Uh, and the wealth inequality is probably increasing, yeah. But we're not in. We, we've not. And but we have also. We avoided the much of the global financial crisis, right? Whereas in North America and Europe, uh, that really brought uh, these issues to everybody's consciousness, right? And that's when you had the Occupy Wall Street movement and so on, right? Uh, as a consequence of that, and and it, it really gave voice to. Um, I know they're not all left wing, and actually some of them are right wing. But anyway, it gave it gave voice to disaffected uh, elements that are a bit more extreme than what you see in Australia. So I think that's part that's part of the story. And I um, and the the challenge that I think the left side of politics finds itself dealing with in Australia is really a challenge from it's more from the environmental movement, right? Um, and that's not an extreme or populist challenge at all. It's actually a deeply conservative challenge, if you think about it, 
because it's motivated by conservation. Uh, it's motivated by a desire to protect what we have, um, what we have left. Um, and and it's, a, it's a movement that would like to see government do more, not less, right? So I think it's more on the, um, I think the risk for Australia is more on the right side of uh, the political spectrum than it is on the left. Um, and there was a time in the 1990s when I think the major political parties on the right side of politics were deeply concerned about um, what was happening there and how to deal with what was happening there. Um, and what do you do? I mean, you either um, ignore it, and this is there's a good reason for ignoring it, which um, in economics, I don't know what they call it in political science, I don't know, but in economics it's referred to as hotelling's rule on... Um, Spatial location, really. You're familiar with hotelling trust. So the simple idea is you've got a, you've got your town um, is uh, just a ribbon development, right? So you've just got one road running through the town mm -hmm. and you've got two stores and they sell the same. Well, they don't necessarily sell the same product, but actually part of hotelling's rule is that they will sell the same product. But anyway, two general stores, right? And where do they locate? And... Let's let's start with the proposition that one locates to the, at the western end of the town and the other one locates at the eastern end of the town. Mm. That being the case, um, either one of them would have an incentive to move closer to the centre because mm. if they move closer to the centre, so let's su suppose the one at the western end of the town moves closer to the centre, they will retain all of the customers to their west and they'll get half of the customers to their east, right? And so they end up side by side. Converging. Right mm -hmm. in the middle. Um, and they end up selling exactly the same products um, and being located in exactly the same place, this place, and this is why duopolies end up with identical behaviour, blah, 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 right? So that's hotelling's rule. And, and in political science, I don't think they call it that, but they've got the same, the same um, proposition that it makes sense for the for, – if you've got two major political parties, it makes sense for them to sit in the centre, right? Mm. Uh, with virtually indistinguishable policies, and for you know, you know, for many many policies in Australia, that's that's for many years now. That's what you've seen. It's exactly what you've seen. Um, so, if if you were if you were um, in charge of running, had responsibility for the the right wing of that political system, and you saw an extreme right movement out there. A valid response is to ignore it um, because, after all, it's not as if those people are going to jump all the way and direct their preferences to the left side of politics. That ain't going to happen. So provided they remain a fringe group or a small group, you're going to end up with their preference flow anyway. You don't get that in the United States. There's no such thing as a preference flow, right? In any way, voting is optional, right? But with exhaustive preferential voting, in compulsory voting, uh, such as we have in Australia, it's a, a legitimate thing, a valid thing to do, maybe a smart thing to do, to just ignore um, what's happening out there and just rely on getting their preferences eventually at, mm. at the end of the day. Trouble is, um, your that relies on um, it relies on a lot of people being able to hold their nerve, <laughs> right? And, and there's something else. And look, 
I'm no expert on the Liberal Party. But remember, the Liberal Party is a... Um, well, if you go right back to the formation of the Liberal Party, I mean, for goodness sake, you had the, the free traders and the protectionists get together. I mean, and they got together in order to produce a party that was in opposition to the Labor Party. That was the only reason they got together. And you've got free traders and protectionists in the same party. It's not going to be happy on policy. We'll never be happy on policy, right? Um, and so the um, that was in the, um, the the party that predated the Liberal Party, but it's still it still is in the Liberal Party. You've got both free traders and you've got protectionists, and you've got so-called moderates, and you've got right wingers, and you've got you know, I mean, it's uh, you've got everything there, right? Everything that's non-Labor. I, which I think basically means don't don't like trade unions. I think that's what it means, um, it, which seemed to be a, a disappearing issue. Mm. Um, and and um, so the the question for the moment is really about the identity of the Liberal Party. I think it is. Um, and if you are um, if you'd like to see the Liberal Party retain, uh, remain attractive to those who tend to be a bit right-wing in their thinking, um, you're going to want to keep the stake in the ground right there, right? Because if you follow the alternative that I was describing earlier, that the hotelings rule would, um, would drive you to, when you see the emergence of a political party in the extreme right, that would push you further to the centre, further to the left, right? That would be the smart thing to do, according to Hotelling's rule. But if you're ideologically (laughs) really uncomfortable with that and you can only ever imagine yourself occupying the right, then you're going to seek to do battle with the extremists on the right. Hmm. And I think that's the real risk. The real risk in Australia, I think, is that in these terms, and I don't want to overstate it, but I think it is nevertheless a risk, is that a principal, a major political party, decides that it wants to occupy an extreme position over there on the right, and that's what's happened to the Republican Party in the United States. Mm. I don't think we should rule it out as a risk, even though I think it's a low probability outcome. Mm. Um, but then what, what is a higher probability outcome? A higher probability outcome is probably the Liberal Party becomes a different party. Mm. Maybe, um, maybe it um, formally dissolves the coalition arrangement with the National Party. Doesn't mean it, it would not, uh, obviously would not, doesn't mean it wouldn't seek to rely upon the support of the National Party for supply uh, informing government following an election. But so what? I mean, that's how coalitions operate um, around the world in many, many countries, right? Um, but they're not, they don't see themselves as being part of the same party and they just come together yeah. in a marriage of convenience. And very, coalitions election. are very unstable. Very unstable. Yeah. And that's a possible future for Australia. Yeah. Hmm. Can I... Um- so yeah, that that's all that's all um super interesting and and makes complete sense. 
I, I also just want to offer one um, speculative explanation mm. for why we've kind of avoided avoided yeah, okay. the same levels of populism mm-hmm. as the US and the UK have experienced and get your reaction to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think because I think it's an underrated explanation. Okay. And maybe someone listening can do this as an honest thesis or something, but <laughs> we're a highly urbanized country. Yeah. This is an exaggeration, but you could almost say that Australia's population is distributed like bimodally. You have a lot of people in rural centers and then most people in the massive conurbations. Yeah. And we don't have that middle category of like the medium sized cities that you have in the US and the UK. And oh, wow. You think they're all redneck cities, do you? <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> but when what, what I do think is when globalization and automation kind of hollowed out the manufacturing centers. Ah. So say in, in the UK, that's like yeah, Sheffield, yeah, going, yeah. in the US, mm. Dayton, St. Louis, mm. Milwaukee. Mm. Mm. Um, you have large swathes of the population mm. um, disaffected, yeah, angry, yeah, yeah. suffering the indignity of unemployment. Yeah, this is um, really interesting. And yeah. those, that's that's tinder, dry tinder waiting for a demagogue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we don't have that. And- to yeah. complicate this picture further, the Australian cities, which would have legitimate claim to kind of being our versions of, you know, Detroit and Sheffield, um, have actually maintained their progressive identities. Newcastle, Newcastle, Wollongong, mm. Geelong, Adelaide. Yeah. So it's a puzzle, but I think it's worth thinking about. I don't no, know. If I, you do. Have any I do. Reactions. I do. I do. No, I like it. I like it. Um, I do like it, and it's certainly true. You travel through, yeah, you're absolutely right. You travel through North America. You travel through the United Kingdom. I mean, you the, see the, those rust belts exactly. Yeah, and them. and these are the the cities that kind of turned yeah, yeah. against um, the European Union in the UK and voted for Brexit on mass. So you see the same thing playing out in Scotland too. It's the other way around. But you know, people, I think, still blame Maggie Thatcher for the closure of the shipyards up there or something. Somebody was trying to explain this to me. That's what they said. Oh, they'll always vote Labor. They'll always vote Labor. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know whether that's true or not, but they yeah. intended to. Um, uh, yeah. So, no, that makes uh, that makes perfectly good sense. And it comes back to something that we were discussing earlier, right, which is about the dangers, the risks um, um, associated with um, people losing their jobs. Mm. Um Losing their self-esteem, um, losing their capabilities to, well, actually to function properly in society, mm. and yeah, I mean they are, that's a fer- that's fertile ground for the demagogues, as you say, absolutely, mm. sure. So, no, I find that quite an uh, attractive, if also unattractive, uh, explanation. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yep, good. Ken, uh, this has officially been my longest podcast ever. But oh my goodness. I have enjoyed every minute. Thank you so much. No, it's been a pleasure. I don't often get to talk about anybody, uh, talk to anybody about these uh, issues, and certainly not in this depth and length. And I, I never get questions of this quality. So there you go. Well, thank you. It's my honour. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. Two quick things before you go. First, for links, show notes, and the episode transcript, go to my website, thejspod.com. That's thejspod.com. 
www.thinkandgrowthpodcast.com. And finally, if you think the conversations I'm having are worth sharing, I'd be deeply grateful if you sent this episode or the show to a friend. Message it to them, email them, drop a link in a WhatsApp group. The primary way these conversations reach more people is through my listeners sharing them. Thanks again. Until next time. Ciao.